Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand, and this is where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, If I backtrack a few years, I'm in Maine. This old salty vessel pulls in called Ness, steel-hulled, double-ender, gaff-rigged, absolutely amazing, and off-steps this... uh, I guess if you ever have thought about an old sea dog, well, that's who this guy is. His name's Phil, and he's an absolute legend. He's probably sailed across more oceans than I ever will. He's circumnavigated for 10 years. Um, He's really just been there, and he's done that, and he has done it with a very similar mindset as I venture out into the sea as well, and This is the kind of conversation I really dream of when I sit down and do this podcast, and uh, he's just a wealth of knowledge and experience, and we get into all sorts of stuff. No notes, no nothing. We just talk, and we go from one subject to the next, but he's really, really just the classic sailing guru. I mean, when I think of people like Knox Johnson, Morticier, all that, I would put Phil right up there with him because he's uh, the extent of his travels and his adventures are definitely on par with some of the great sailors of the world. So, ah, man, I'm just so excited. I, you know, we just finished up, but I'm putting this out. Uh, I do, I am going to put it out as one. It's about two, two hours and 15 minutes long. Um, I would put it into two, break it into two, but for some reason the Spotify app is not letting me upload two simultaneously, and I don't want anybody to miss out on it. So whole thing's going out, but before we begin, like I always say, if you want to become part of the family, the Sailing Into Oblivion Patreon family, you can follow the link and help keep this show going. The support has led to new equipment for the microphones, new stuff for Sparrow, getting us ready to go back out to sea, and uh, it is with a very humble thanks that uh, all the people that already support the show, you guys really are keeping the adventure alive, and I do appreciate it. We also have the Sailing Into Oblivion merch, hoodies, shirts, tank tops, all that sort of stuff, so you can check that out with the other link to Bonfire, and uh, if you want to contact the show, just uh, go to sailingintooblivion.com, hit the podcast button, and uh, contact the show. That goes directly to me. So other than that, without further ado, here's my conversation with Phil. Yeah, he uh, is the man. Well, he was one tough son of a gun, you know? I mean... Um, here, pull this up yep. just a little bit. There we go. Okay. Cool. Phil, I can't thank you enough for coming and talking with me on this one. But let's not de- detract from that. Uh, yeah. Well, I think he was, Bernard Mortissier was probably one of my biggest influences as far as opening my eyes to not only sailing the world, but cruising the world on a zero budget. Zero budget. And being able to have these crazy, wonderful experiences intermixed with wrecking boats and just traveling the world. Yeah, and he was before any of our electronic doodads. No, he was pure, very celestial, and all the rest. 
that goes along with that. And like, no, he would, I don't, I don't know if he died before or after the um, electronic revolution. So I don't even oh, know. Oh, after, he, he died in 94. All right, so like he knew that GPS was on the, on the scene, I don't know if he ever used it or not. Yeah, well, I, that was, that's a good question. I wonder if he actually did or not. I'm sure he probably toyed with it, because I mean, people must have been throwing him every new gadget in the world because he was so well known. Well, he had two boats. Joshua and his second boat were essentially given to him by people that had the yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah. Because it's what happens hard for when you write a really good book, <laughs> all of a sudden, bang. <laughs> well, it was um, what? Um, um, the Long Way. The Long Way was his big him. one, yeah. yeah. Although, I'll tell you, the, the logical route where he and his wife do their honeymoon uh, throughout the Tuamotos and then take the Southern Ocean back. That book was unreal when it gets to the point where they go through that like five day gale and he talks about the first 24 hours and it ended up being, I believe, like a double low. So it was really intense and then things started to ease up, but then it cranked back up and he doesn't, he talks about the first 24 hours, but he doesn't, he says that he could never do the rest of that storm justice in a book and it was best saved for good company around a fire. Right. Well, okay, so in that book that I showed you the other day, which is his uh, uh, autobiography, he criticizes himself badly about the writing of that book towards the end because he yes. he felt like he didn't he didn't give it the uh, justice that it needed, and he skipped over too much. Well, and I I think that's something that comes along with uh, artists and writers no matter what. You know, you're always going to look at your own work and be like, oh, that could have been better. But, yeah. I, I mean, right. think about it now. How many sailors read his books as absolute, like, Bibles almost of the ocean? Well, because he's so inspirational because he was like a basic guy. Like, um, for me, I've never had a whole bunch of heroes, but he was like one of them just because of, like, in... Um, um, the long way, he was just communicating, communing with the ocean, becoming one with the ocean, oh, yeah. and one with the whole um, spinning planet in the universe. And here you are on this little green marble in some little pissant boat out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> on the biggest expanse. I mean, you know, they call it planet Earth, but they should call it planet ocean because 70% of it is water. Right. And we're the type of people that go out and spend a lot of time out there in that arena. How uh -huh. many, not, not that I like to like throw numbers out, and I don't know. If somebody asked me how many miles I've sailed, I could say maybe between 100 and 200,000. You got any ballpark figure? Well, okay, so I know logbook-wise, I have 47,000 miles on Ness. Okay. So that's what I have in my logbook. That's legit sailing. Uh, on Ness, which is now eight years. Okay. So that's 47,000 miles in eight years. And then there was um, 30 years of sailing before that. I did a circumnavigation in uh, from 1978 to 1988, 10 years circumnav. Oh, And so, like, God. there were some miles on that one. So, um, and... <laughs> a couple of miles. just Yeah, and I did, you know, <laughs> and I did other trips, too. Like, 
um, across the Pacific a couple of times independently and across the Atlantic a couple of times independently outside of both of those, the circumnav and mess. So um, overall, I don't know. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's not. I think it's one of those things. You get to a certain point. When I when I was doing like yacht deliveries, I think I got to about fifty thousand miles, and I stopped counting because it just didn't seem to really matter. It but, doesn't. It doesn't. After a while, you know. Yeah. It, it seems to matter. In it the seems beginning. to matter to me. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Twenty five thousand miles. That's as long as going around the world. Or, um, yeah, I've sailed this boat. This, that, and the other thing. But then after a while, it's like, you know, so what? It's not about it, yeah. That's no, not what it's isn't. about, you know, and or the time spent. Like, you have definitely spent more consecutive time. What was your um, circumnav? Uh, I was out 271 days. All right, well, yeah, so at once, my longest, all at one crack was 101. 101, though, hey. And that was with this boat. That was Cape Town to Grenada. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. It doesn't count though. Cape Town, Grenada is about what six thousand miles or something. Yeah, but that's in some of the best trade winds in the world. Well, it was really good sailing, and um, I really enjoyed it because like there wasn't <clears throat> any real weather to no, speak uh, of. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. was like I don't know, light gale, like thirty knots or something for a day or two or something like that. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, like there wasn't anything really ferocious or horrendous, and. <clears throat> Uh, I didn't see any ships at all. Yeah, there's not much. The South Atlantic, I've always said that if the apocalypse happens, South Atlantic High, that's where I'm going. Yeah. Nobody's I mean, like you live your life out there, and the fishing was really good. <laughs> the, fishing, the fishing was really great uh, all the way from Cape Town all the way to Grenada. The only thing after, the, after Brazil, going across the equator, um, going towards uh, Grenada, there was a awful lot of sargasso grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was impossible to fish. Well, and then does it get caught up on your wind vane, the, the water, the high Oh, yeah. I, I had it all over uh, in my bob stay. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, Like if the boat plunged, I have it all over the place. And it dried fast and it stunk and it created bugs. Yeah, flies. yeah, yeah. Well, and, <clears throat> and the sound, when you go through a big patch, you're down below. No. And all of a sudden you hear. Yeah. It was starting to go, holy cow, what is yeah, that? Yeah, and after, after you realize what it is, I would be saying to myself, well, there goes a knot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because it's all hanging off. Yeah, you're dragging yeah. like 10 tons. <laughs> like I woke up one morning, I think the first morning I was around it. And, you know, I left the lure in the water overnight and came up in the morning. The whole damn thing is like, it's got like two tons of yeah, sargasso right. weed I'm on surprised it. surprised it didn't break it. Well, it, it did break at some point. I lost it. That's when I quit oh, fishing. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, I had, so when I crossed the equator going north and got just just to the point where the, the seaweed was pretty bad, you know, there's tons of Dorado under there. Tons, tons, of, tons them. of them. Oh, yeah, they're everywhere, man. But they're they're hard prolific to, fish. Yeah, and so I adopted this sort of uh, technique where I would wait until I could see them because they'd be hunting the flying fish. As soon as I saw them, then I would pull out my lure and I would just throw it out. It was just a hand line. Yeah. And there were two, two times where that lure hit the water and it barely was able to drag for 15 seconds before that fish got it and I yanked it right in. Yeah. 
That's good. But you can't just troll them because, yeah, they just No, you can't just right troll out. them. I was trying the same thing, like looking for the holes yeah, in right. the Sargasso oh, weed. And throw that baby out there, man. <laughs> um, and actually, those fish, after the equator, um, were really the best Dorado that I was getting because they were small. Yeah. They weren't that big, you like know? This. They were big enough to get... You know, a couple good fillets out of them where you can have good meal now and good enough in the morning. Well, and I, I typically use, the lures that I'm using might be three inches, maybe four inches long. And a lot of them I was making out of old beer cans. You just cut it into the shape of a squid. Yeah. Puts that right over the top of a, of a, uh, a hook. And they loved it because it glinted in the sun. Yeah, and all that. oh, that's what they like is the sparkly stuff. Exactly, and they just go right after it, but... I don't know. Outside of them, I didn't really catch many other types of fish besides the flying fish that ended up on deck. Yeah, a lot of tuna. I never got a lot of tuna. One south of New Zealand. The thing with the tuna is, is they usually wound up being too big. And so that I started lot, filing yeah. off all my barbs so I could get rid of them easier. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, is that because you not have refrigeration on the boat? No, I don't have refrigeration, so... Um, well, how come you don't like salt the meat or something? Well, I have canned. I am a canner. Oh, so really? I do can. I have tons of canned meat of yeah, all kinds. Yeah. So one time I did catch a tuna. It was about fifty pounds, and he took the hook. Man, he like went for it. It was like in his gut, you know. And I couldn't get it out without killing him. Right. I didn't want to cut it because it would still be in his gut and he would die sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I had this fish and it was big. It was like this huge fish and a big like fat five thing. feet. Yeah, probably yeah, well not quite but eighty pounds or something. Yeah, somewhere in there. That's a lot of meat. So I said, well okay. So what I'm gonna do with this one is I'm gonna try canning it because I've never done that at sea before. Yeah. But and see what happens, you know, and had a good couple of days off of it fresh and then can rest and it it canned really well it was like a hundred times better than store-bought canned oh i'm sure hundred times me? so do you have to cook it and then can it um it depends with fish no with fish you just put it in a jar raw mm -hmm. and some liquid and then you can it because the canning is cooking it Oh, really? Yeah, because it's in boiling water for like 20 minutes. The jars are. The jars are. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it cooks. So like you can over, you can, when I would, I learned the canning thing in Alaska when I was living there doing salmon, and I was doing it all wrong because I was cooking it. And then somebody, a friend of mine, saw me doing what I was doing and said, hey, you don't have to cook it because you're cooking it twice. It would be a lot better um, just putting it in a jar raw, so... So it's in a, what, like a mason jar? It's a mason jar. And it, it's not submerged. Does it have the cap on? It has a it cap on. It has a, it has a uh, sealed lid and then the screw down thing. And you bring the water to just below the top of the jar. And you got four jars in there at the same time mm -hmm. in the pressure cooker. You got to use four jars whether you're canning something or not. If you're not filling up four jars, then you got to put water in the other ones because that will keep the jar from falling over. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, with raw anything, raw meat, the general rule of thumb is 20 minutes after it starts whistling. 
Oh, okay. And then, then you screw the cap on, or the cap's already No, the on? cap's already on, and then um, it seals. You just put the cap down lightly to keep it in place, and when it seals, there's like this little um, bubble on top of the seal. Yeah, that's it makes up. noise. Yeah, right. and pop when it goes down, so you just wait for it to go down. And that's wait when for it, it cools, pop. right? Yeah, and you, yeah, and you just, I have like... Um, I've got like I started out with mischief. I got like ninety five jars. Really? Um, mostly uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken soup is a big thing for me because I like chicken soup. So you can make really good chicken soup. Yeah. And you just unscrew the lid, pop the lid off, and you got like a meal that is a thousand times, without exaggerating, a thousand times better than Campbell's or anything else. Or you know, I'm assuming a lot better than. Uh, Mountain House? I don't do that stuff, man. <laughs> I don't have a single freeze-dried nothing on my boat. Not nothing. I did it one time with somebody else on somebody else's boat. I was on this trip with them, and they had all this Mountain House stuff. And I'm going, eh, you know? It was it, like, no way. It doesn't taste great until you're really hungry. Until you're really hungry, yeah. Okay, so on the trip from New Zealand to Chile... A friend of mine gave me an emergency ration pack. Okay, uh, yeah. And I just put that stuff away, and uh, I figured, man, I'm never going to use this shit, you know? And then um, one afternoon, I was just really hungry, and I didn't feel like dicking around with all the, the, the stuff that I use mostly is beans, rice, pasta, flour, bake a lot of bread. Yeah. Everything's like beans, rice, pasta. Like full-on traditional sailor <laughs> Yeah, and all diet. that kind of stuff. Anyway, so... I dipped into the emergency ration. It was like chicken cacciatore or something. Yeah. And, you know, broke open the bag in hot water for a second and, and scarfed that down and go, damn, man, this is okay. You know, it's like <laughs> not the greatest, but like it's better than popcorn. And, um, <laughs> which I do too. Popcorn's fun. I definitely have a lot of popcorn when I'm out at sea. Yeah, it's popcorn. Fun to make, you know. It is fun. And, um, as long as you don't burn it, and then the cabin smells terrible. Well, how do you do it? Do you have an air popper, or do you have no, you I, in a frying pan right on the a, stove? A little bit of olive oil and some yeah. butter and a little seasoning, and just let yeah. her go. Yeah, and I do it in my pressure cooker, and it comes out perfect almost every time. Oh, nice. Now, is a pressure cooker, that's using electricity, right? No. It's not? No, it's stovetop. Oh, it's stovetop. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. So it has a lid that fits with a seal. Yeah. And um, as it heats up. And it heats up, then you have this gizmo on top. There's different kinds that jiggle. And that's mm -hmm. allowing the excess pressure off. Right. So it doesn't explode. Right. Well, I think, I think Mortissier, he talks about when they were in Cape Town way back in his first voyage, uh, the only way a cormorant was edible was to actually put it in a pressure cooker because again they didn't have any money and they were down there shooting them with slingshots uh, yeah he was a slingshot guy <laughs> he was a big slingshot guy he learned the slingshot thing when he was a kid look at that can that's my emergency ration right there yoder's bacon okay so i can bacon really yeah well that's canned bacon that's real you bacon. know what i do remember I do remember you telling me about this when we were in Maine about canned bacon. Yeah, yeah. My and brother Sven. He and gave it I to remember me. seeing canned bacon from New Zealand years and years ago. So 
Um, I got on this kick about canning my own stuff, so I can bacon. I can sausage. I can chicken. I can. When I'm in the canning mode, I'll buy a whole roast beef. Oh, really? And do it in the oven and cook it. And then, and then can it. How and long? How long of a life does that? Indefinitely. No way. Indefinitely. What's the oldest can you ever ate then? Of my own? Yeah. Of home? Okay, well. Um, <clears throat> Challenge. Probably a couple years. A couple years? Yeah, because I put stuff in the um, in the bin, and it was like way in the back, and then I just kept putting more stuff in yeah, over the top I've of it. Yeah, I've done that. And then uh, I was in Oriental at my base, and I figured, uh, you know, this is a good time to get this stuff out of here and clean it out and see what's up. And so I came across a can of hamburger meat. <laughs> I was like two years old. It was two years old. I love I it. Popped the lid off of that thing and tasted it. It tasted just fine. Made spaghetti sauce out of it. It was like one of Little my favorite bolognese. things. Little bolognese. Yeah. Hey. Right. hey that's not? one of my favorite things to can, actually. Is hamburger meat? Is hamburger meat because you can do so much with it. Oh, you can so do like spaghetti sauce. You can do um, tacos. You can do like... Um, uh, sloppy Joes, you know, you can like uh, uh, make eggs and um, and meat, you know, anything. Well, and that, that's a huge important thing, especially when you're going to be out for a long time. Having the ability to make like a variety, variety, of foods. I mean, variety. Lest we thing. forget the wise words of Knox Johnson when they asked him if he would do anything different. Corned beef. He's like, I wouldn't bring just corned yeah, beef. Yeah, he had like five hundred. <laughs> Cans of corned beef or something. Oh, my God. Right. I couldn't imagine. I mean, yeah. I eat a lot of rice. I have probably 50 or 60 pounds of rice sitting in that cupboard right there and a bunch of oatmeal. Those are like the the staple things that I like to keep on board Yeah, as, as like, you know, if I run out of everything else or something else gets ruined or whatever, I, can, I know I can last for quite a long time now because, you know, that first trip I ran out So what food. kind of rice do you use? Uh, there's a mix between brown rice and then white rice. Pretty basic. Yeah. Know. And it was just one of those things where it's it's inexpensive enough where I was just like, well, let me just buy a yeah, bunch Yeah, you of can it. get it. Um, as long yeah. as it stays dry, it's pretty much good. So do you have, have you had any weevil issues? I've only had weevils come out through some uh, like pancake mix stuff that I had. What uh, about oatmeal? I've never, I've had mold get into the oatmeal where like the cardboard underneath gets wet. And then you open it up in the oatmeal. Yeah, I've had, I don't know if it's because I have stuff that um, I have on the boat longer than it should be there. Mm. But like I've I've lost oatmeal and rice to weevils. However, Bernard came up and I just, I read this a few years ago. He came up with the trick that actually works. It's like, mm, it kind of leaves a taste a little bit. After you get used to it, it's no big deal. <laughs> okay, so what he does is take a cotton swab uh -huh. and puts alcohol on it and puts that in the container of the rice or oatmeal. Yeah. Or what, and that kills them. Uh, oh, so if you've already got weevils. Yeah, well, you know, cause you I have always, them. yeah, you can eat them, you know. Well, extra protein. All right, and the other thing about weevils is, is like with oatmeal. If I have weevils in the oatmeal, I put the oatmeal in the pot, put water in the pot, heat it up so it doesn't boil yet. Mm -hmm. The weevils will die and come to the top, top and, and you just skip them off, and right, that's that. Right. You know. 
So I don't really worry about it too much, except it can get to the point where they contaminate everything because they start, they're excreting. And there's more weevils than there is oatmeal. And all of a sudden, like, you just have, like, this green, horrible, <laughs> ugly mess that you know you're not going to eat, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then, you, yeah, you're in, in uh, line for an infestation. Have you ever dealt with, uh, well, I'm sure you must have, but cockroaches on the boat? Oh, yeah. It's here. Oh, here? Well, in on, in the Carolinas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just buy these things, these traps. Mm-hmm. They work. They do. They yeah, do. they work. You gotta, you know, you gotta change them every couple of weeks, and they're not, they're not real expensive. I don't worry about it, but like they, they work. Yeah, I've had cockroaches, and um, get them out at sea. I've had them out at sea once, but I, I swear, and I don't know how this is even possible, but I saw one cockroach three weeks into a trip, and then got it, grabbed it, threw it overboard. I never saw another one after. Yeah, that's pretty rare though. Usually, if you see one, you've got a ton. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they propagate if they if it's an egg sperm thing or if it's a physical contact. I, thing. I had always heard that if you like smash it, step on it, it like sprays the eggs all over the place. Oh, uh, they're the most disgusting thing in the world, man! I like get just get rid of them. Yeah, I can't stand oh, yeah. it. No, they're gross. I mean, I I <laughs> would I would rather have cockroaches than mice because I know mice can do damage. Like mice can do damage. Wires. I had one mouse. It got him. Came on board. Uh, in a boatyard, North Carolina, dropped out of a tree. Yeah, and I started hearing, you know, I started hearing all this stuff going on. I knew it was on the boat. Yeah, and I tried to, and then I was getting holes in all my plastic bags. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, you and, got and, and boxes. Mm-hmm. Plastic well, but it's bags. The wiring they go for too. They go for everything, and so after a while, I said, okay, you know. I've played this game enough <laughs> with this mouse. It's like broken. I mean, I pick up a bag of oatmeal and the whole thing pours on the floor because yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. hole in it this big. I said, okay, I've had enough. And so I got some traps, and one night I was in bed, I heard the trap, bang, you know, so I get up. And that mouse was the healthiest-looking mouse I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I felt bad, bad right? about killing him. Because he was a nice mouse, you know, he was big and his coat was shiny and everything. He's eating good foods. Yeah, off of he your was boat. like, yeah, yeah. He was styling, you know. He had it made. He had this whole well-provisioned boat to like gnaw. <laughs> no junk food or anything. No junk food, nothing, man. <laughs> Nobody hassling him, you know. It was uh, like, yeah, yeah. We'll see you later, Buster. How much? Uh, how much do you attribute? Because uh, you're you're of the. The lovely age of 75, correct? Right. And you are still solo sailing, moving and shaking. How much of that do you attribute to what you eat? All of it. All of it? And you've been on this sort of pretty healthy, non-junk food, non-processed food <clears throat> diet? Um, yeah, time. my only my only problem has been sugar. Ah, sweet tooth. Sweet tooth up to yin-yang. I used to like provision with... 20 bags of cookies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, you need that for morale. For That's morale. Okay, so my best cookie story is when I sailed <laughs> from um, Montenegro, Mexico, to uh, the Marquesas, I had picked up a stranded hitchhiker, a young woman. She was 21 years old. Um uh, the boat that she was on, they decided at the last minute that they weren't making the Marquesas crossing, and 
she was like begging everybody to go and I figured I liked her she was a nice young girl and I figured okay you know I've never had anybody on the boat but like you know I'll try this so yeah it's the, just a quick little sale yeah it was like it was a month and a half it was a month and a half she was okay so I'll, I'll say that she never angst me she really learned how to get on the, how to get along on the boat and everything and she was good we, we never had any problem or anything the the point is is like every day at sunset we'd have our cookie frenzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bag of Mexican cookies. They brought cases of for like fifty cents a bag of these horrendous cookies of various kinds. Yeah. Bring a bag of out and have our cookie frenzy every night at sunset. You know, so like that's the kind of junkie I am. And um I used to have lots and lots of cookies on board, and I'm a baker as well. So I'll bake chocolate chips and I'll bake anything. I can mm-hmm. I can bake. So <clears throat> I did notice that like my metabolism and everything was changing, and I was reading. I was figuring that I might be coming close to having diabetes. So oh, really? I just said, okay. I read a lot of stuff. And I figured the best thing that I can do is just cut the sugar down to hardly nothing. Yeah. And be sensible about it. You know, it's like instead of eating a bag of cookies, you know, like you eat four cookies, okay? Yeah. Because <laughs> I eat the whole bag, man. If I'm like in the U.S., I'd do the worst shit in the world. Go buy a bag of Oreos yeah, and a quart yeah. of milk and suck down the whole goddamn thing <laughs> at one time. <laughs> So I just quit doing that. Good man, good man. Well, sugars, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's not. It hasn't been until the last like hundred years that sugars become like completely readily available and ingested in every. Well, food it wasn't source. available almost to the entire world yeah. until uh, the mid seventeen hundreds and stuff. Until the plantations in the Caribbean and all that. Right, sugarcane and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I. Definitely agree with you on that one. I try not to eat uh, any sugar at all if I can, but every once in a while I have to have one of those. I have sugar on the boat, you know, and I I'll have a cup of coffee in the morning. It's got sugar in it, but it's like a, a teaspoon of sugar, and that's it. And um, and I will still make um, sweet stuff. I'll make some cookies, or I you know I like banana bread, but instead of like scoffing it all. Um, you know, I'll just make enough where I can keep it for a week. A little bit and, of moderation. Yeah, a little, you know, a little moderation, a little self-control, a little discipline, you know. <laughs> and then I've learned other things to keep healthy about using uh, readily store-bought available um, herbs like cayenne, ginger. Turmeric. Turmeric, garlic, mm. uh, rosemary. Yep. Those things there, they'll keep you healthy. Little apple cider, apple, apple cider, cider vinegar. vinegar yeah, yes, that's, a good one. that's one of those things. Yes, apple cider vinegar. Um, uh, turmeric. I have turmeric in both. Um, I just bought a whole bunch of fresh just today and yesterday at the um, uh, Publix fresh turmeric mm, yeah, and yeah. ginger. I use a lot of ginger because ginger I know is good. Ginger's really good. And the yeah. and the cayenne. This afternoon, like I boiled, you know, for tea, um, make a um, slice up some ginger, slice up some turmeric, um, 
a little cayenne and down that and you know it keeps everything kind of moving yeah well like i said i mean you're you're when i grow up i want to be just like you I, i'll be lucky if i am well my only advice is is like find a way to um to exercise i don't know how you approach that i used to exercise a lot i used to walk a lot I used to ride a bike a lot I used to swim now because i'm traveling on the boat I don't get all that exercise. So, like, when I come ashore, like, I rode the bike today a few miles, you know. I try to get as much exercise as I can, and I don't have it outboard, so I row whenever I can. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But at sea, I tried, I've tried doing, like, the calisthenics that I learned when I was in the military. It's tough. It's really hard. Well, it's hard to do. The boat's uh, moving. Yeah, it's hard to do a sit-up when you're being flipped over, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Or you're doing it in a bunk or whatever, you know? And I try to do, like, stretches and stuff like that. I think that's one of the big ones, yeah, is, is trying to do almost some sort of, like, yoga almost routines. Yoga's hard on the boat, too, if the boat's moving. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They they all are. I mean, I, I it's hard to even, like, do push-ups out in that cockpit. But here's the, here's the good news is... For me, with my boat being what it is, a catch and gaff rig, and no, I don't have a single winch on the boat. Oh, so you have to do that all the so Everything, like, like when I'm sailing, I am fairly physical. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how many, countless times a day am I up and down that ladder? <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. I mean, that's got to be, that's that counts. Oh, absolutely. That counts for exercise. It may only be four stairs. But a hundred times, times, you know, yeah. and, you know, you're holding on, you're getting thrown around, all the rest. And um, just the inherent movement of the boat itself. And, you know, you're flexing and mm -hmm. you're relaxing and you're flexing. And, you know, you're, you're like always moving. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always. Except for like when you're in deep sleep, you know? That's about the only time that you're Yeah, not. like wedged into the bunk somewhere. Yeah, and you wedge yourself in there. Well, other than that, yeah, I mean, I know I'm getting a ton of exercise when I'm running dead downwind and the boat's rolling 20 degrees either side because you are holding on and you're flexing that way. Then you're do you, that so way. will you do that? Oh, Will you yeah. run dead sure. downwind? Absolutely. If All that's right. the way I want to go, I mean, obviously it's a lot more comfortable if I sail on broad reach and I have a jib up and all that sort of stuff. But sometimes I need to be going that way and I want to go that way. And so I've, I've gotten so used to it because, you know, down in the Southern Ocean, I mean, you know, you're in those westerlies and I want to go due east and I want to get out of there as fast as possible. So I, I sort of, you know, in the beginning, I was like, holy cow, this is awful. It's just rolling. But then you get used to it, and then you sort of build your life around it. Now yeah. I can do it all day long. All right. Well, good for you because I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll, I'll do a broad reach. What I'll do is, like, on the chart is draw a straight line, like, from New Zealand to Chile. Yeah. And then at noon every day, just tack across it. Right, right, right. Gotcha, gotcha. And, yeah, because, like, after a while, the rolling, I just go, like, you know what, Philip? You don't really need to be doing this. It's yeah. going to slow you down some, but it's never really slowed me down all that much. You know, it well, does. You can. You're but going it, faster, typically. And it's way more comfortable. Way more comfortable. Way more comfortable. I, can't, I mean, I don't know how your boat is compared to mine, 
um, in I terms think, of rolling. I think like, ours are, are almost identical. Well, we're, we're, what's your beam? I think Sparrow's about 10 feet, 10 or 11 feet wide. Okay, so Ness is 10, 6, and the uh, official measurement is 31 and a half feet on deck. That's in between the perpendiculars. Yeah. But if you go outside the perpendiculars, it's just a tad over thirty-two. Okay. So they're they're comparable, and they're you know, and they're the same. You've got basic hole. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. the same basic hole shape. The only thing is really different is the rig. <laughs> the rig and the fact yours yours is made out of steel. Mine's made yeah. Out and of how much do you weigh? Uh, between thirteen, around thirteen tons. Okay. So I just weighed in on a, on travel lift scale. A few weeks ago, and I was twelve. Oh, lightweight! <laughs> yeah, and I'm I was like, kidding. I was ten thousand in uh, Tahiti. Oh, you were saying yeah, yeah. a few years ago, You're and gaining I gained two thousand pounds. Man, I gained a ton in a couple of years. And it's not it from happens. being waterlogged. Yeah, right. It's definitely not from being waterlogged. Uh, and what what type of boat is she? What type of design? Uh, originally, it was a Tahiti catch designed by John Hanna. Back in the 30s, and it was a published design in the um, uh, Mechanics Illustrated. Really, for dreamers that want they he wasn't selling it the design when he first built it for yeah. first design he wasn't selling it, and then he had this um, inspiration to call it a Tahiti catch. Instead of like some other great name, yeah, Tahiti catch. And then when it came out in um, uh, Mechanics Illustrated, all these backyard guys who had the dream started building them. There were thousands of them. Yeah, some of them sailed, some of them didn't. Most of them didn't because they were backyard guys. Right, right, right. But there were there were plenty of them around. And then um, uh, when he died, John Hanna, when he died. Uh, years and years later, his um, his wife was um, uh, financially scraping. She sold the design. Oh, okay. To this guy Weston Farmer, and he redesigned it, and now calls it Tahiti Anna. And uh, Tahiti Anna was redesigned to be built in steel. And that's the one. That that's you what have. I had. And so they they added a foot to the length and took a foot out of the beam. Where um, mm. Tahiti's were pushing it on the beam to um, length ratio. That yeah, that's like almost more than one third, right? Yeah, it was like a freaking bathtub. That's a bit ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah. and they they did plenty of oceans. They did you know there were. Tahiti's that went around the world, they were always the slowest. Well, Ness is still the slowest anyway. But um so that's what I wound up with, which is that is a um modified Tahiti. Well, she's a beautiful boat. I mean, it's so funny that, you know, you the first time we met was two thousand twenty one up in Maine. You hauled out up at Night Marine. And that's where we met. And then you went off, and I figured, you know, shoot, I don't know if I'll ever bump into him again. And then, lo and behold, three days ago, you pull into the marina here down in South Carolina. And, you know, it was so funny because Brian came over. He's like, man, you got to meet this guy. And I can remember being up in Maine and Dave coming up to me and saying, 
man, you got to meet this guy. <laughs> and just because they, you know, everybody thinks I'm going to, you know, I'm an old sea dog. And, and like I said, I hope I'm like you when I grow up. But in any event, uh, it's just so crazy that uh, the world has brought us right. I mean, literally, you're on the same dock as I am. It's so yeah. Crazy. And, you know, it's not it's not really all that unusual in our lifestyle. Like how many dozens true, of times true. have you run into people that you've met? Elsewhere, yeah. Well, like-minded people, you, you are going to end up in the same circles, the same places. Yeah, you know. Um, but you've sailed since since 2021 that summer. I've done two laps of the Atlantic, or one lap of the Atlantic down to the equator and back, and then one around essentially Bermuda on this last one with the knockdown. You went. I went to Europe. You went to Europe, but you got knocked down on that trip, right? No, that was that was like the next year. That was the next year. Okay. Yeah. So 2001, you went over to Europe from Maine. I uh, well, no, I went when I left you in in uh, Maine. Last time I saw you in Maine, that was like the trip that I left in November. Mm -hmm. That was going to the Caribbean. Oh, okay, okay. So I went to the Caribbean. No, it wasn't. I think it was earlier than on uh, 21. I think it was 20. It was the year of that COVID. Oh, was I headed to the Northwest Passage that year then? You, that when I when you and I separated, you, I think that's what you were doing was the um, the figure eight. Yeah. Okay. The figure okay. eight thing. Okay. So I went to the Caribbean, and I was in um, uh, the American Virgin Islands, and I got wind that no pun that um, there was <laughs> the classic. Race was going to happen in Antigua. Okay, the, yeah, the yeah. the big classic race, and so I got a brochure from that, and saw all these boats were going to be there and everything. And one of the things, one of the events, it just I don't know why it caught my fancy. It just like sounded so cool. It was a single-handed gaff rig race. Oh, really? Yeah. Anybody right with a, anybody with a gaffer race? Well, I'm not a racer. No, I'm like the turtle. Yeah, I'm like yeah. the last one in everywhere, always. My boat's the slowest <laughs> boat on the world cruising fleet. Love to say that is the truth. And I'm not a racer. <laughs> I'm not a racer. But I figured, okay, man, that would be so much fun racing Ness against other single-handers with gaff rig boats. And all I want, the only thing I'm looking at is to finish. Yeah. And to be allowed to come to the bar with everybody else, you know, <laughs> right, right, have right. some dignity about it. Be the last one in, but yeah, man, we finished. They always cheer for the last one in. Okay, so I was I was heading to Antigua when the whole COVID thing happened. Oh, okay. Interesting. It was right then. And did they shut their borders? They shut the whole thing down. They canceled they canceled the classic um, week in the classic, they canceled the race week, which is immediately after that, which right. is just racing of of all different classes and stuff. Yeah. Um, so they canceled that, and then my agenda was is I was going to do the um, Antigua single handed thing, the classic party hardy for a week or so with all these boats from all over the place, and then cross the Atlantic to Brest, France, for the once every four year. Festival of the Sea, which is a gathering of tall ships and all the other classic boats that exist on the planet. Uh. They were saying, like, they're expecting in, in Brest, in this bay, like 30,000 boats. Oh, really? From all over the world. 
sounds it's, like a madhouse. It's a madhouse, total madhouse, nautical madhouse. And it's like a party for two weeks. You'd fit right in. I wanted to, man. And at that point, I was like 72 or 73 or something. I figured, okay, man, this is the chance to go and um, do uh, sea chanties, you know, and hang out with all these sailors from all over the world and you know, I would fit because my boat isn't the greatest, but it is cool enough to like hang with character. the hang enough, you know, got cool great enough. Character. Got enough character to hang, you know, I'd be accepted. <laughs> you know, it might be funky, but okay. We can deal with that. Cause who am I? I'm funky Phil. All right. And then they canceled it. Right, right. Yeah. They canceled it and they and because there are so many of the world's big um, sailing ships involved, all the big, uh, like the uh, Eagle yeah. and uh, Esmeralda and ships from all over the planet, they all have their programs and agendas, so they just can't say, well, okay, you know, we're not doing it this year, we'll do it next year, because they have plans. Right. So the organizers in France, they've put it pretty much on the back burner right oh, now it so it's not ha no and so i was on their um on their mailing list on the email and i emailed them because i wanted to make a plan and i said well so okay so like when's the next time that you're planning on doing this and they said we're indefinitely off the chart for right now mm. and it would have to be at least four years to catch up with the loop yeah if the other vessels involved are interested you know yeah, because they're do. on like a world tour, the tall they're ships, on, right? They're all on tours, and they're all doing the bigger ships like the Eagle and Esmeralda from um, Chile and all the other big uh, school training ships. They have programs, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, a schedule for they're taking um, recruits and um, cadets out for a year or something. Yeah. And yeah. then they, they have some lay time and then they do it again. So and they do like events in ports, and then they do the ocean crossing. Where yeah, they have well, they do like okay. So the thing in France, most of them, what they do is like they're coming from all over the world. The ones that are cadet ships, they have the cadets that are doing, you know, a leg, an ocean leg, or if they're charter, they have they're booked. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, a lot yeah. of them are booked. Big years charter in years and like. Guy, people are spending fantastic amounts of money to be on some tall ship that's sailing across the ocean and winding up in the biggest party in the world, you know? I've got a buddy of mine, the, the, the guy, his name is Phil as well. He, he gifted me this beautiful old sextant that I use, you know, pretty much every time I go out. But he does that. He hops on those boats and uh, goes across the Atlantic. I think he's done it a couple of times. He says he absolutely loves it. Because, he, you know, one of the crazy things, I think the last one he was on, it was slow going from the Azores to the Mediterranean. And so they had them working pretty much, you know, throwing more and more sail up because they had to sort of keep on schedule. Right. And so he kind of, he always says, like, it feels like you're like you know, the real one deal. of the crew yeah. on this boat. And yeah. They keep waking me up to go put more sail up. Yeah, the experience of doing that. Of being on a on a, an authentic sailing vessel, you know, and, and being a part of it and everything, yeah. I remember walking around on the Constitution when I was a little kid. My dad's side of the family are all from Boston, and so I, I definitely remember that. But I've never been under sail on any sort of big tall ship or anything like that. 
Yeah, me neither. Except like the biggest that I was, I worked on a hundred and six foot schooner in Singapore. That was like the biggest. Oh, really? Yeah, a cow schooner. Moving cows? No, cows. You know, it's uh, the designs from Cows England. Right, right, right. It was fancy schmancy. It was a uh, lifting tea yacht. Type oh wow! Doing like a, day sales with, and stuff. No charter. Charter. Oh really? Yeah, cool. I was like the I was before the mast. Yeah, I'll bet you. Yeah, were. and I did it for six months because I really learned a lot. Yeah. But I being, um, being an American, it was like I'm not subservient to anybody. I am not a second class <laughs> citizen. And screw you. You know, <laughs> it was like. Yeah, and but the captain was really cool. I mean, as far as teaching, and I wanted to learn, so like we got a report. He was a ex-British um, Navy commander, and he acted like one. You know, he was like kind of stuffy. Yeah. But um, and his ship was like the real deal. It was like kept it like perfect, and, and there was like flag etiquette and you know all this stuff. A place and, for everything and everything in its place. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you stay. Forward of the mast until you are called to come to the <laughs> after deck, and then you do your duty, and then you disappear to the foremast. You know, right, it was right. like a lot of that. And we were eating different food oh, from what the charter wow. was. The charter. Oh, well, yeah, the, the captain's wife was this French beauty, and she was like, you know, totally gifted in the galley. And so, like, we'd see the food that she was giving the guests. Yeah. And we'd know what we were getting. And then after a while, after six months, I just said, you know, I am really done being the boy. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> How old were you when you were doing this? Oh, man. Uh, 35. 35. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a good time to be doing that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, the fun part was is I really learned how to sail a schooner and we had an incident i don't remember how that got started but we were in um uh an island off of um, the coast of malaysia and john the captain john guthrie oh he went ashore with the paperwork and uh, we were in this open anchorage and he said that this is really, really iffy, this anchorage. And if the wind comes up, you got to get out of here. And he says, I am trusting you with this boat and the whole show. If you got to go, I want you to go. Whoa. If it starts blowing, get that anchor up and get the hell out of here. And send me a message and we'll talk and come back as soon as you can or i'll meet you somewhere but like get the boat out of here yeah so it happened oh really? so it, it, yeah it blew and i was like holy fuck man we gotta really go and there was crew you know and i said well you know john said i'm the captain and we're going and so like we just took off and it was like four days and we wound up coming back to the same place Terengganu. so <clears throat> He trusted me for with his 106 foot, 200 year. That's a lot of trust. Yeah, a lot of trust. A lot of trust. So like that was like a real experience for me. And the other thing, and this is all I'll say about that, is his wife now knew she was French. She was really beautiful woman. She was pregnant, and we were crossing the Indian Ocean, and one night it was just a beautiful night. It was like 15 knots or so on the beam. The boat was just like schooning. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just like up over the swell, really long swell, just beautiful swell. And I was in the rigging on the cross trees, those full moons, just sitting up there checking it out. Yeah. And Nanu was on, she was pregnant. She was on the piano. There was a built-in piano. Oh, wow. She was playing. She was just feeling the ocean and the vibe and her baby and the whole thing. Yeah. And she was playing, and I was up in the cross trees, and it was like the most magical couple of minutes of my entire life. You know, it was like, whoa, man. Like, this is like, if I died right now, this is complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's something that I've run across plenty of times out at sea is that feeling, whether it's, you know, just some crazy sunset or just the whole mood of the sea and the sails and the boats moving and you just get into this this overwhelming feeling of like this is this is the perfect place and it's all yours. And there's no there's no interruption, there's no uh, there's no wall in between. No, I have felt that a bunch of times on crossings, you know, just, just uh, you know, the boat's moving. It doesn't matter if it's night or day, the boat's moving really well. And, like, you know that, like, hey, man, like, for real, you, me, Philip, out here, you know, thousands of miles from nowhere with this boat doing what you're supposed to do, and it's all good, and it's all really beautiful, and... Like, this is what you really came for. There was a lot of moments like that. Yeah, And yeah. then there were special moments like, you know, when there was like a thousand dolphins around Right, you. right, right. Literally, you know, you've seen it right from horizon to horizon. Nothing uh-huh. but dolphins. They're jumping all over the place. <laughs> like, I had yeah, a, um, I think it was on this last trip. No, 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 not the last trip. Maybe it was the year before. A super pod, which is like, I don't know the technical definition, but hundreds and hundreds of dolphins came up and they're just mulling around and da da da. And I'm started taking a little film or whatever, but all of a sudden one of them must've heard some bait ball off in the distance and, and in unison, they all took off. Yeah. And it sounded like uh, a racetrack or something. It was like, and they just boom, boom. And they're all leaping and they sort of disappear off into the distance. But I'd never seen that many dolphins just obviously somebody was like hey guys food that way food. yeah and they just took yeah off. It was unbelievable well they do have their way of communicating and they are incredible creatures oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah and i've seen like i what i would think would be thousands of them they're yeah it's migrating it's rare, but man they some of them roll in absolutely and okay and things. i had one experience in the freaking two motos where I was actually like not so sure of what I was doing in terms of where I was. Yeah, yeah. And and the GPS had me somewhere, but like it just didn't feel right. And I was seeing like the bottom where there shouldn't have been any bottom and it was getting dark. And it just was like, I just felt like, man, you are in the wrong place. And all of a sudden there's these dolphins and they're doing the tail slap thing. Oh, okay. There's yeah, like yeah. four or five of them. They're on one side of me doing the tail slap thing, and then they charge that way, and they stop. They do the tail slap thing, and they come back, and they do the tail slap thing, and they disappear. And I figured, okay, you are to about you. to die, Philip. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> just trust the universe, trust it all, and follow them. Yeah. You know, and they led me into deep water. Really? Yes, they did, and led me away from this atoll, which I couldn't see. Yeah. Which um, 
did show up on the GPS, but I couldn't see it, so I didn't know where it was really. Right, right. And right. so they led me into deep water. And after that, I just go, you know what? <clears throat> if you don't have faith in life, then you're just a loser because. Like, <laughs> Faith in nature. Let's call yeah. it faith in nature. Faith in nature. If you don't have faith in nature, then you're just a loser because you're part of it. And like they're yeah, trying they're to, they're, they're there. They're helping you. They're, so, well, let me ask you this. So, when, when you altered your course, did they stop behaving that way? No, they were like, well, they stopped the tail slap thing, but they were all around me. Oh, okay. So, okay. I knew when I changed, when I did attack, and like they kind of fell in on both sides of me and were like, you know, just dolphining with me. That um, that I was doing the right thing. Well, and, and obviously you have heard or read about Mortissier and his experience near the North and South Trap below Stewart Island, New Zealand, where the dolphins, essentially he was headed right towards them. He didn't realize that Joshua had changed its course. It's really light winds or whatever, but it was, I think, in the evening. And suddenly the dolphins came up, but they would come up to the bow and take a hard turn. And they'd come back and do the same thing, yeah. hard turn, hard turn. And he'd never seen dolphins do that before. And then he, lo and behold, checked his compass, saw he was off course, and then altered his course. Yeah, and then the dolphins went back to the normal stuff. But he was, yeah, he was right there on the one little chunk of rock and coral that you can hit down there. Well, and so I can testify to that, that the real... So They're tail there. slapping. Huh? Tail slapping. Tail slapping. Your side. And, okay, and there's this woman. Her name is Susan Casey. She wrote a book, Voices in the Deep, mm -hmm. about dolphins. Oh, okay. And then she wrote another book about uh, was the um, uh, uh, tiger's, tiger's Tooth. It was about uh, great white sharks in um, the... Um, Islands off of San Francisco. Um, oh, just space uh, the name out just now because I'm old, crazy. Uh, Catalina or something? No, no, no. Right off of San Francisco, the, <clears throat> there's a group of islands out there that is a shark breeding ground. And then she wrote another book called The Wave, which is about <clears throat> waves in general mm -hmm. and about surfing and about um, rogue waves and about the ocean and everything. Anyway, I had read her book about dolphins, so like I emailed her from Tonga when I got there and said, well, listen, I had this experience with the these dolphins were tail slapping. She goes, well, and I said, so like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, what it means is they're trying to get your attention. That's yeah. what it means. Right. It's like, that's how they do it with each other. Is they start slapping, slapping the tails on the water. It sounds like it vibrates in the water to each other. That's, that is their attention-getting device. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, So I said, well, yeah, okay. They were trying to get my attention, and like I listened to them, and they got me out of trouble. She said, well, that's really great, you know, but it's like it's not the first story. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you ain't special, buddy. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing special here. I think that's something very special. Well, it's just like being a part, you know, is being a part of it, being a part of the ocean, and wanting to be, my whole thing has always been just wanting to be connected. Yeah. To the ocean, to the wind, to the, uh, to nature, to the universe, to the flow, to all of it, to be uh, in sync with with everything concerning the natural world. You know, as a sailor, that's all I ever wanted to do was like you know <clears throat> be in sync. And so, like, you have to learn that 
you know, you listen to the voices that are talking to you. Yeah. Wherever hey. they are. And and mm. realizing that it's all interconnected, interweaved. And I you know, I I truly believe that sailing is one of those ways, especially solo sailing, where you can dive into that much easier than anything else. Even when you're out in the woods or anything like that. And I've done a lot of hiking, done the Appalachian Trail and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing that compares with being out in the middle of an ocean and your connectedness, not only to physical nature, as in the ocean and the animals that are in it, but also this invisible part, like the wind and the barometric pressures and all these yeah, things. Yeah, and learning that, all that stuff. You know, learning to to read it and to you know to trust it and to use it. And, and to witness it, even. And well, to witness it. You know, like we we were talking before about both of our experiences getting rolled and getting almost dead in the um, Gulf Stream at the wrong time of year. Yeah. Yeah, that whole few days being in like 35, 40 foot seas, just watching it, I was like, oh man, like if I was, if I die, you know, like I know that like I saw this. Yeah. You know, like the ocean in his worst mood. Although I did go through a hurricane years and years ago on my circumnav, and that was like, you know, that was ugly as well. But it seemed like the Gulf Stream business was worse. Well, I think the, the waves in the Gulf Stream, when, you know, you're dealing with wind against tide, they take a different sort oh, of form, man. a different, they're a whole different wind ball game. And that's like, that's like the biggest example of that is the Gulf Stream heading more or less to the northeast and the northeast storm that I coming in yeah. coming together. I mean like they bucked heads, man, like big time. Yeah. Oh yeah. It sounds like big it. time. Well and in in my case, I had wandered out of the Gulf Stream and into a pretty powerful eddy. And the eddy was headed the part that I was in uh, I was essentially going in between two of them, but those eddies were headed north, and the wind was out of eh, essentially like the northwest. And eventually, once I got far enough into that area, that's when the waves really piped up. But the 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 rogue, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, that hit me the night before, that was just a complete oddball, probably twice the size of anything else. It wasn't until the next day, six hours later, that I started to see the sets roll in of these giant faces, steep, huge breaking crests that just sort of fell over the front and then continued for 30 seconds. And you're just listening to that noise. I know. Well, that's what woke me up at 1.30 in the morning, Yeah. about 30 seconds before I got tossed. Yeah, yeah. Because I heard it. I heard the wave just broke and... All that cascading water coming down the face and just wondering, like, well, so what now? Yeah, right. At least you had a little bit of warning. Well, I had, like, 30 seconds, and then all of a sudden the boat, I just, <laughs> I just felt it. I felt like like some giant just grabbed a hold of me and just, like, tossed me. Like, you would yeah, toss yeah. a um, cockroach, you know? That's what I felt like. Aren't you glad that you have such a tough old boat? Well, it, it definitely um, proved this metal, no pun intended there, I, on that one, yeah. you know, yeah. And there have been, 
that was like the worst as far as like you know getting picked up and thrown and like uh, you know like really rough rumbling the boat up you know and it held what really surprised me is I didn't lose my mast that was like the most Same amazing here. thing yeah because did you have any sail up yeah I had um, reef staysail so I was hove too oh okay okay gotcha. yeah so I was hove too totally hove too on reef staysail I had a reef in there just for um hoving two in the worst conditions and that's what it was and so like after the boat righted you know i went over and came back up and all this stuff was on top of me and i throw it off and the only the thing i was thinking about was like the mast yeah and so i opened up the hatch and the mizzen you know was right there in my face of course and i saw the the boom from the main was still there so i think well they're connected. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, right. Thank goodness. So it's still there, and then the dinghy is where it is right now, right outside the hatch. That's pretty amazing up. that that stayed. Well, because I tie that sucker down, man. Like a spider web. Yeah. Like that, I know? mean, like, I have, um, it's tied four places, but they're all through a block and going through the handrail. You know, right, it's like right. a yard on it, so it's down. Yeah, yeah. It's down. It didn't even move. I was, like, totally surprised. I lost the oars, lost everything that was in it. Yeah, yeah. Bad. And it became a deck locker because I put fenders in it and shit, and everything that was in it was gone. Well, and do you have a life raft on board there? No. No, you don't? Wow. So that is your life raft in a way. Well, Kind of. Not really, because, like... Not much of one. Because there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it's really tender, little tender. Yeah. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't last in the ocean, like, two freaking seconds. <laughs> My one experience, the dinghy's been great, because I've used it all these years. I In Patagonia, you know, you're tying lines ashore every night. Yeah. So I was ashore, tying a line, and... I was standing up in the dinghy to reach um, a limb, putting line over the limb, and the dinghy was on top of a rock that I didn't really realize was there. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it uh, went down on one side and filled up with water. It didn't fill up with water in totally, but it filled up with water enough. And so I said, okay, it's still floating. I'll just like get this line on the limb, and I'll roll back to the boat, and I'll take care of business. Well... About 30 yards from the boat, the fucking dinghy just went out of control and flipped over, oh, filled no. up with water. Yeah. Um, and will it sink or is it a floater? No, it was a floater. It floated okay. upside down. And this was in the middle of the winter in Patagonia. And oh, I'm the in southern the water. Winter. Yeah, huh? Southern winter. Eesh. And I'm in the water by myself. You know, there ain't nobody for hundreds of miles. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm looking at the dinghies rolled over and the oars are all over the place and I have a couple of lines on uh, on shore and I figured, Oh, dude, you gotta get out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Hey buddy, hypothermia. Yeah, you gotta get out of the water now. <laughs> and like so I'm wearing like wool pants, wool underwear, wool sweaters, wool shirts, wool hat, gloves, scarves, rain boots, rain pants, raincoat. Like I weigh like a freaking ton. <laughs> and like I have water pouring into me through all <coughs> openings. So like I'm just like walrusing around. And of course I didn't have a uh, swim ladder out because I wasn't expecting to go swimming. Right, obviously. And, you know, there was no way in the world that I could ever pull myself onto the boat. Not with all side, that, uh, not no. especially with all that. So I got to the bobstay, 
climbed up there. And, and just wallowed. Climb would be a good word. I just wallowed. <laughs> wallowed my way up on deck. Oh, my God. And, like, and then I saw the dinghy, like, you know, start and float away in the oars. And as I had all the lines on shore, so I let some lines looser on the boat and started the engine. I got the dinghy tied upside down and fetched the oars. And I figured, okay, you got the boat's tied, you got the dinghy, you got to take care of yourself, you know. And like, you're going to go into hypothermia. So I just stripped all the clothes off, went down below, got into the bunk under some blankets and, and whipped up some hot water mm-hmm. and, you know, drank a couple cups of hot water and I didn't go into hypothermia. Nice. At all. Because you, yeah, you got a little heater on there too, right? Yeah, I, mean, I didn't have it going at the time, but as soon as I had it, the second I did, yeah. it, was like, it was like getting under the covers. Right, right. That yeah. really helped. Getting out of all the wet clothes, just getting totally naked, getting under the covers, and then I could reach over and kind of stretch over to the stove and get the stove lit and put some hot water on because I knew I needed it inside. Yeah, in the yeah, core. yeah. Get the core. Get the core. Warm back And up. so, you know, so it turned out okay. And then I got the stove going. At that time, it was a wood stove. Now it's diesel. Um, so I got the stove going. And, um, you know, I laughed about it later. Um, As you do. Yeah. You know, you go, okay. It's a great memory. Okay, you dumb. <laughs> it's been <laughs> dead, you know. It was like, all right. It was like, you know. Ay, ay, ay. Well, okay. it's it's you know it's always a bit of a danger when you're trying to get back aboard a boat, then you don't have any sort of ladder or anything like that. Do I you mean, wear we, a harness? No. Neither do I. I never had a harness on in my I, life. I I I used to have to on, and I know I'm going to get a little bit of flack on this from some of my listeners, but I I used to have to every once in a while on yacht deliveries when I wasn't the captain, and. The two times in my life where I've almost fallen overboard, tripping over a tether, um, that, you know, it was perfectly flat calm. It was just at night, and, you know, you're just sitting there having to reclip and unclip, and and there's the jack lines and all that sort of stuff. Well, aboard Sparrow, I've never, even going around the world, I never clipped in. I have the equipment, because you never know. Yeah. But I will say that last, the night before the knockdown, uh, I was on deck quite a bit during the day, and as it started to get dark and the waves were getting a little more intense, uh, that was the first time I ever put the harness on so that I could just, when I was sitting in the cockpit, I just felt a little safer. But I didn't spend much time up there after that. I was like, you know, even with the harness on, big enough wave comes and breaks over this cockpit, I'm gone. Yeah. So the smart move isn't to just trust that. It's to actually go down below. Yeah. I always felt much safer down below. So my sister, who's not a boater, but she does love me, she figured that I should have all the stuff because mm-hmm. I told her that I don't have a harness, I don't wear a harness. Right. She, and she read a couple of yachting magazines and books and stuff. She said, well, you got to have a harness. I don't have to have a harness because I tripped over one that I had. I put the line on, yeah. then I tripped immediately. I was like, I had no reward with the harness on. Go upside down. You know, I was like, okay. Um, but anyway, so my sister Allie, so she went out and bought jack lines and bought a harness with a clip-on thing. There were two of them. Yeah. So you can put like one on, one off, you know. Right. She did the research and she spent a zillion dollars and she sent me this stuff. And she said, well, so, Philip, are you using the jack line? It was a new term for her. Yeah. She sounded like salty. She sounded like a salty. <laughs> using the jack lines? I go, 
No. <laughs> no, but it's good to have them. I, I figure it this way, is that having that equipment on board, because you never know. You know how the, the, the ocean has a million different moods, and oh, there yeah. just might be a situation where it would be nice to at least be able to clip in. Like I, You know, one of the things that I think when you don't clip in that happens is you think longer and harder and smarter about what you're about to do on a boat. Absolutely. I know every second where my feet are and, and where my are. hand is. The old saying, one hand for the ship, one hand for yourself. I mean, like, that's how I live. Absolutely. You know, and I don't move because unless I have it thought out. You pay the ultimate price if you lose that focus. Yeah, okay. So for you, me, and the listeners, what's the worst case scenario ever for a sailor is to wind up overboard and watch your perfectly trimmed self-sailing boat go off over the horizon to the sunset by itself. And you're sitting there going, well, now that was a dumb move, wasn't it? True. Okay, That's very true. I think the only thing that would make that worse is if you had a life jacket on. Because then you would be sitting there for a for, long, oh, time long time until the sharks I, found Hey, you. well, you're the very first person, man, that has ever expressed that outside of my own thoughts. That is like, that's what I think about life jackets. Is I'd rather just drown. If I'm going overboard and the boat's gone and all that and I can't get to it, obviously, and all the rest, I want to drown now. Make my peace. I would dive, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd do that because you'd run out of steam after. No, what, you just die. No, yeah, but you, it'd be easier, I think, to just dive. Yeah, and just, just and just and push going. it to the limit until you start choking and drown, and then be done with it because you know you're going to drown anyway. I don't want to sit there and be in misery as long as you know as long as it takes. I just like do it. I don't want to get picked apart by animals. Yeah, I mean, that like be... before you die, get some. Big old gnarly sharks start biting on you. Yeah, right. Or yeah, some other goddamn no thing, you. you know, no anything. You. Well, I, you know, I just uh, I think it's one of those things, and it's always going to be a bit controversial. But I, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Honnell. He's a, a free solo climber. He has all these world records. He climbs, you know, El Cap and stuff like that without any lines. So he's just doing it. You know, one false move, he's going to fall. He's going to die, and it's. It, I remember seeing him in an interview and the guy was asking, well, you know, wouldn't it just be a lot safer to, you know, use lines? Why do you do this solo? And he just looks at him. He's like, that's a stupid question. And I think when people ask me that, that's what I want to say. I don't say it like that. I try and explain. Yeah. It, but I've I've seen people do inherently stupid things, go up forward completely unnecessarily because they're clipped in. They feel safe. And they put themselves in this position because you, know, you could still get thrown overboard and then smashed up along the hall all day long. Uh, and the only reason you went up there is for some stupid reason that I wouldn't go up there because, you know, it's unsafe. But you get this little bit of extra false security, I think, when you clip in and you think, oh, OK, I'm safe now. And you put that trust in that. I think that trust is what keeps me from wanting to always like use a harness because that that false sense of security can get you in trouble big trouble big trouble and if you know like every time i walk forward even if it's calm or it's you know perfect sailing i know if i fall over 
that's it. That's game over. Game over. It keeps that focus at 100%. Yes, sir. And it doesn't lessen. I mean, the the minute I might start feeling like, wow, uh, I don't have 100% anymore, then, yeah, maybe I'll start wearing a harness. Okay, so. We'll see. Who knows? Being at my age, I am not as agile or springy as I used to be. Right. Like, I can't jump like I used to. I yeah, yeah. Jump anywhere, and I was really agile, and I would jump off the cabin top and grab onto the head stay, you know. With now I crawl, but like, okay, <laughs> now I crawl, <laughs> yeah, man, you know, like I'll crawl out there if I have to go up to the head of the um uh bowsprit or yeah, into yeah. the eyes of the ship, you know, for one reason or the other, or out on the bowsprit. I mean, I've gone out on the bowsprit, um. With no harness, no nothing in gales to get a jib down that was all tangled up and stuff. Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, um, how did you get? I mean, okay, so right before I met you in Maine, I was coming up from the Caribbean. Um, I had. Okay, I'll backtrack a little bit. I was coming up from the Caribbean. I had a roller furl jib at that point. Before that, coming across from Africa to the Caribbean, I was still hanked on. I still had hanked on for several years. Yeah. And uh, crossing from um, uh, St. Helena to um, Brazil, it was like the wind came up like from... 10 knots to 30 knots in a couple of minutes. Really? And it started coming up, and I go, okay, man, this isn't going to last because like, it had been calm for weeks. You know, and I go, just hang on to no, it. No, not a squall or anything. Yeah, just, no squall. Just, just all of a sudden, there, you know, it just started coming. It was like crystal clear. There wasn't no black clouds around. It just started coming, and I figured, okay, it's not going to last. Just hold on to it. You'll be all right. You know, so I was sailing, had hands on the tiller, took the wind vane off and everything, had the boat. And then all you know, I realized that man, this ain't going away. <laughs> and you gotta get that jib down. The waves are now. starting to build a Yeah, little you bit. gotta get that jib down now because yeah. you're gonna sail this thing under right. if you don't do it. And so I go to um go out there. I was on the bowsprit and hanked on jib and the on downhaul got clogged up. So I was out on the very end of the bowsprit trying to pull the sail down and Bowsprit went under, plunged under, and when it came up, I was off of it. Oh, geez. I was like totally off of it. Yeah, And yeah, there yeah. was a second where I saw in my mind that you're not connected to the boat right, no right. more, man. <laughs> you are in space. Yeah, yeah. And I came down across the bowsprit, knocked the wind out of myself. Oh, as it came back up. It came back up. I came down. And like the the two inertias coming together, yeah, and knocked the wind out of myself and dented my rib or something. I don't know. Ugh. And I got the I got the sail down and I like crawled back into the cockpit, and I said, "Well, okay, brother, if you live through this, <laughs> you get to Grenada. I am getting a roller furler." Wow! Really? So in Grenada, I did a refit there in. Um, in Grenada, in uh, um, Grenada Boat Works, Grenada Boat Yard. And is um, that what you have right now, Roller Furler? Yeah, same one. I'm still Hank on. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> after that experience for me, you have a oh, puppet though, don't you? Uh, I do, I do, but it's it's one of those things where I I I err on the side of caution. I mean, I've been caught out a few times for sure, but typically, if the weather looks unpredictable, I'm not really using any jibs. It's all stasel. And, you know, well, I use my stasel more than anything. My stasel and my mizzen more than anything now. Yeah, but then that. I was using the jib. So, you know, so I got uh, a roller furler. Okay, so I think the story was is when I was coming up to the East Coast, the first time when I met you in Maine, I was planning on going into New Jersey because I had relatives there. A fairly good blow, a 35, 40 knot blow came up. And um, that's windy. And off New Jersey, the roller furler, the shackle that was on the roller furler, mm -hmm. broke. Oh, and okay. So, roller, so it unfurled. Huh? So it no, unfurled? No, it was like, um, no, it, it was, it was, I already had it furled, but it was swinging around. It was moving around enough. Oh, okay. But yeah. it wasn't really tight because mm -hmm. it's not on a stay, it's on an internal stay. Okay. So yeah. you just have a double block up there. Mm -hmm. So it was working. So the shackle broke. Gotcha. So in the middle of the night, I heard this racket. <laughs> and scraping so I stick on your my, deck. Well, it was more than that. It was like banging in and everything. So I stick my head out of the hatch, like really cautious. And I see that the roller furler is swinging back and forth. <laughs> I go, well, okay, man. That's a, and that's a lot of weight and it's a big a, object. If well, it it's you. a big, it's a 30-pound bronze yeah. spool. Swinging on like swinging a 30. Around. Yeah, yeah, swinging in the middle of the night. So I just got down prone position and crawled out to the mast, to the foremast, mm -hmm. and got a hold of the halyard and dropped the damn thing in the water. Smart. Smart. And then in the next morning, I brought it back up. The sail was shredded. Oh, <laughs> why didn't you bring it up that night? Because I was too scared to, man, because it was <laughs> swinging around. And I knew it was going to kill me. And the best thing to do was just to get it in the water, get it away from, like, swinging around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was a really wild night and all that. So I got up in the morning. I was concerned about it. I could hear it, like, kind of banging against the um, boat, but it wasn't the furler. It was the sail. So I got up in the morning and pulled the thing up, and the sail was shredded. Yeah, I'll bet. So I didn't have a jib anymore. And so um, it was still windy. So I got out the charts and stuff and figured out, like, okay, New Jersey is not an option right now. But the best place that you can get to would be Montauk. So I sailed into Montauk. Okay. Into Montauk, Long Island. You been there? No. The uh, end of uh, the eastern end of Long Island. But yeah, I, I know the area. Yeah. So you can get in there and you can get into the harbor fairly easy. It's like not a real big deal. Right. It's open. It's you know, there's no real um, uh, dangers. There's no shoals or anything. The entrance to the harbor is a bit narrow, but it's like I was already under motor by that time. Anyway, so I did some research while I was sitting in Montauk. And it was this guy, a sailmaker in um, Greenport, Long Island, that said he would make the sail. So I went to uh, Greenport, and he made me a new sail. And I was there for most of the summer, and I was on my way to Europe then. And that's when I had the incident 
in the Gulf Stream off of Maine where it went totally dead flat calm and it was like really super oh, tropical. It's, and it spooked you. And it spooked me because yeah. it was like the middle of August. I go, yeah, this, you're going to get lured into keep on going then you're going to get your ass whooped bad. <laughs> <laughs> so like, never mind. North Atlantic can be a pretty scary Hell place. yeah, it can. Yeah. It can be one of the worst oceans anyway. I, I firmly believe that. I mean, yeah, oh, sure. between that and I, I would say that uh, that chunk between Cape Hatteras and Greenland is right up there comparable with the Cape of Good Hope and the Agullis Current and the Southern Ocean roaring against that. Well, all of that because you have the Grand Banks that are sticking out there mm-hmm. and George's Banks and all that that are super shallow. George's is probably one of the scariest places. Yeah, and... Um, Those currents and are nuts. Nuts. And um, Sable Island, which is really a low island, which is in the middle of the corner of a gyro where all this current and everything is, yeah, is swirling around it. coming down. You get the and the Gulf Stream's the stream. going up. Yeah. There's... there's and it's foggy there, really, really foggy because of that, because of the cold water and the warm water coming together. It's just a bad place. Oh, yeah. And you can get in some serious trouble there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cause the, and those those systems rip off that coast at crazy speeds sometimes. Yeah. And they just seemingly explode. I mean, when they call them a bomb, bombogenesis or whatever it is. The thing, I mean, I, I watched the, the first little low-pressure system I went through in the Gulf of Maine when I left because I knew it was coming, but I, I knew it was just going to be 12 hours of hove to waiting for the wind to switch, and then I was going to ride it out. The barometric pressure dropped 30 bars in 24 hours. Yeah, that's and not I was good. like, holy cow. But it was, it, was a, it was just because it was a small, really tightly packed one. Never got over near gale, the gale force. Which is enough, though. It's it's. it's I was enough, like, oh, thirty-two cow. foot boat. Yeah, hell yeah, maybe I should go back. But you know, it was one of those things where I kept going. Had I known what was going to happen, you know, maybe I would have done things differently. But. You know, when I left Maine, I waited in this place just south of um, of Rockland, in a little tiny fishing village there, and I waited for a week or so, and then all of a sudden there was a window, and um, I figured, okay, man, this is it. You either go now or you don't go mm-hmm. you either move or you don't and so i went out i was out about 150 miles 200 miles away <coughs> and there's a uh coast guard plane flew over me then did a circle mm-hmm. and came back and they blinked their light so like that means get on the radio oh okay that's what they do. Yeah. If you don't have your radio on, I didn't have my radio I on. I never had my radio yeah. on. Well, I do when I'm when I'm in a, a high traffic area. Yeah. Well, that's about it. Yeah, that's it. If I'm coming into a crossing a shipping lane or something or here, you know, I'll keep the radio on sometimes. But anyway, so he blinked the lights at me, so I came up on the radio and he asked me, you know, if I was like this particular boat and I go, No, no, that's not me. He goes, Well, we're looking for this boat. Have you seen this, this other sailboat? And I go, no, I haven't seen anything. And um, he said, well, okay, we're looking for him. We got uh, you know an emergency. It wasn't a mayday, but it was an emergency call, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, no, I haven't seen him. And he goes, well, okay, we're going to continue on your way, but I would like to tell you that there is a system. Oh, wow, okay, that a weather it, update. Yeah, a, you know, a weather update that is going to be coming across your beam here in the next 14, 15 hours. Oh, wow. And so 
I said, well, uh, thank you very much. You know, good day. And then looked at the chart and go, okay, so you ain't going back. There's no going back. Right, right. There's just no going back. So, like, just hold on to your britches, buddy, you're, because you're committed, here it comes. Yeah. Oh, and that was geez. it. That was the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think in a lot of ways, though, it's always going to be a bit of a gamble what you're going to run it into out there. It's always a gamble. And you can you can do as best as you can do to prepare the boat and be prepared as far as experience goes. But in the end, if that ocean wants to take you down, that ocean can take you down. It's going to eat you. The ocean will eat, eat anything. Anything. Biggest oil tanker, biggest aircraft carrier, biggest container ship, the container ship that evergreen something that got stuck, <laughs> stuck in, in the, the Suez. Suez. I yeah. love that, man. That was oh, like the greatest news I ever saw. <laughs> go, oh, man. That is just pure human arrogance. Uh, yeah. The building. Well, and like the Valdez, too. Yeah. And that thing went, went aground. I watched a uh, a little video I was about up there that. then. Oh, really? Yeah. Jeez. All, all that guy had to do was turn harder. He was drunker than a lord. And he was down well, the captain. The captain was. He was, the captain his, was. Yeah. he was drunk as a lord. And he was letting his junior officers right, drive right. it out, you know? And he was, yeah, I mean, he's headed, he sees the light that's on that big reef or whatever, and he starts his turn, but for whatever reason, he wasn't turning hard enough, and just, bam, pummels into that. Oh, my goodness. Such a big mistake. Yeah. But. Yeah, big mistake. Those things do happen out there, you know? Yeah. Nobody's, uh, the, nobody's got it perfect, that's for sure. No. That one probably could have been avoided. Yeah, and the thing about Suez is just pure human arrogance, because they have a ship that... Is longer than the narrowest yeah, channel, yeah, right. the narrowest <laughs> turn, the narrowest <laughs> elbow, and it is windy there and whatnot. And they got that thing, yeah, stuck in there across the Suez, and they, it cost them like billions of dollars in shipping woes because the ships on both sides had to turn around oh, yeah. and go back out it, around. It literally halted global commerce for I don't know how long. For we're a we're long still trying time. to recover from it. Yeah, Crazy. and then along with the COVID thing of having ports shut down, like there was like a hundred ships off of um uh Long Beach, California that oh, couldn't I get remember in. Seeing images of that. Yeah. yeah, and actually actually on this last trip, on this trip Coming down from, I left from, uh, went out into the ocean from um, from Cape Lookout, North Carolina, and was coming down to uh, Fernandina, so I was like three days offshore, and um, I was 45 miles out at in the late evening, just 45 miles out, passing um, uh, Charleston, mm -hmm. in between Charleston and uh, Savannah. And all of a sudden, I see these lights up in front of me, and big lights, and I couldn't tell in the binoculars what they were. And I turned on the um, the GPS and my uh, AIS, and fuck, man, there are like forty five ships out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know about that one? Yeah, yeah. well, because yeah, I mean, ever since. Well, probably, yeah, 2020, um, and maybe even a little bit before that. But even on this last trip, when I passed, I went sailed right through all the anchored ships outside of Savannah, and there were 27. Yeah. And I'm, like, worming my way through. I know. I did that in the middle of the night in, in squalls. Oh, jeez. 
Super fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, between so you, between Jacksonville, Savannah, and Charleston, that's some major shipping that's going on. Oh, man. So, like, you know, it was getting dark, and I was sailing really well, and I figured, you know, hey, I'm in for a nap. You know, I'm up for a nap. I'm up for a night's sleep. Not it's anymore. all going to be good. And then turn on the GPS and see all these ships there. AIS and go, oh, Jesus Christ, yep. man. Kiss that goodbye. Now what? And then when I got close, it was like they were everywhere. I was like going underneath one stern, going uh -huh. underneath another bow. And they stink, don't all that exhaust. Uh, oh. Yeah, and then there was one. Um, There's a squall, and it was a pretty good squall, but it wasn't, I could tell that it wasn't going to kill me. Yeah. It was just a matter of holding on. Right. So I'm holding on to the boat, and I look up, there's a black wall right <laughs> next to me, oh, cruising by. I see the the um, green uh, starboard light. Yeah. And it's like like 200 yards away from me, and I'm holding on to dear life. God. And then he goes by, and I have to like duck underneath some stern and head this way. And I go, okay, um, this is going to be one interesting night, yeah. and there ain't no sleep in this one Ew. at all. And sometimes that's just how it has just to be. Just how it goes. I, anytime I'm nearing land, anytime I'm near lots of traffic, I know sleep is not an option. There's no alarm clock in the world that I'm going to use. I Do you use alarms? Away. Like no. radar alarm or oh, GPS alarm or anything like that? I use the AIS <coughs> alarm. So, so do you broadcast? Yes. So I, I have an independent transceiver and a receiver on that. And then now I have a backup where essentially the VHF is a receiver. So at least I can, you know, receive it. Like, cause on the, when I lost the gallows, I lost my AAS. And so I was from Bermuda all the way back. I was old school. I had a radar reflector and my binoculars. And that was pretty scary because I had never been in that situation offshore where I had the total confidence of being able to go to sleep for a couple hours. I didn't have that anymore. Uh -huh. Plus, I was pretty rattled from the experience. Right. And I had two more weather systems. I went through five systems when I was out there. And the second or the, the fourth and fifth were pretty scary because, again, I was still pretty rattled. Um, but the fact that I wasn't sleeping much at all made it worse. Right. Absolutely. And it, you know, there were two bouts where I, I probably made it just about to like 40 something hours without any sleep. And you start to like see things 40, oh, yeah. which I, you know, even going around the world, the longest I went was maybe 36 hours. And that was, that was getting in close to the Falklands. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when people say, oh, I've, I stayed up for three days, I'm like, I don't even think my body would allow me to do that it would just shut itself down and be like you're, yeah you're just in my experience out. it does like i think the longest that i've ever i think it was like 28 hours or something that's what i reckoned it to be 28 hours mm -hmm. and you start to lose well your i just knew that like i'm losing it man you're losing it i'm just i knew that i was losing it and that's and where I said, philip you're losing it man you gotta safe. like i just like crumbled <clears throat> Into the bottom of the cockpit. Yeah, yeah. Just crumbled. Just, well, Matt, and like just fell asleep, you know, for an hour or two. And that's all you need. And that, yeah. And I was in a situation that was crazy as hell. I was heading towards shore and there was a light in front of me and I knew I was heading towards that light. And I was like 20 miles out or something, but I saw that light and I was like already over the edge of sleep deprivation mm -hmm. and the boat was yawing. 
Right, right. So I was trying to keep up with the light. I, oh, in my mind, it yeah. was the light that was moving, moving. and not me. Yeah. So I was yeah, trying to keep up. I was I was trying to keep up with the light, and I go, so like, what the hell is that light? It's a train, and it's a train. you got to get behind the train. <laughs> it was like no train. There was no train anywhere near. But yeah. I was like totally gone. And then all of a sudden, like in one second, I just said, Philip, you have lost it. Man. Yeah, yeah. You are totally lost. And like just. I just crumpled. I just like my like a piece of tissue in the bottom yeah, of the Yeah, right. Cockpit. Well, you do, and and that that's your body basically saying, you know. Yeah, you you're done, man. Stop. You're done. Yeah, you're you know you're either gonna die or you're gonna like catch a little bit of sleep. I don't know how long I was out. Yeah, it, like I said, it usually doesn't take much. I, I know that on one of those long stints, I fell asleep for maybe an hour, and I got right back up, and it felt great. And then I was up for I don't know how long. But you, are you familiar with Matt Rutherford? He's the first guy to circumnavigate the North and South uh, America uh-uh. in one shot. He did it on uh, Alvin Vega, I think, 27-foot boat. Oh, yeah. No, I don't know who that is. Well, I know he, those he's, boats, he's epic. I mean, he did this in 2011. And Northwest Passage, Cape Horn Up, never stopped. Who's that? Matt Rutherford. Oh. Yeah, great guy. Uh, but he, he when he and I talk about that, like sleep deprivation, he's like, He's like, I get to a certain point, I'll just drop all the sails and be like, I don't care if something runs me over. What? I'm just going to sleep. Yeah, well, you don't care at that point. You don't. Well, you, yeah, and that's the way us humans are built. It's like you reach a certain point. Yeah, and you're just like your brain kicks out, man. You just you got to sleep. That's all there is to it. You got to like shut it down. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> it's like it just, a safety mechanism. Well, you drop all the sails and you just. Just lay to, just let her, you know, somebody told me years and years and years ago, when the shit hits the fan and everything else fails, just leave the boat alone. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. if it's worth anything, it will ride it out no matter what you do. That's true. That is true. Well, and, uh, you know, you were saying you, you were hove to in, in that storm where you eventually got knocked down. Have you ever laid a hull where you just, you don't have any sail up? You lashed the tiller in the middle. I lay I laid a hole the night that the roller furler came off. And how does your boat react to that? It's just like it went sideways to the swell. Uh-huh. But it's just like I don't know, it was comfortable. Yeah. And it I creates was, that slick, right? Yeah, and I was already I was like losing it already. Mm-hmm. And I went out there and saw this pendulum swinging around with a 30-pound piece of bronze on it that I knew would crack my <laughs> skull like an egg. Yeah. You know, I was like, Dad, you just got to get away from this thing. There's nothing more that you can do. I can't get the staysail up because I got to go beyond yeah. the pendulum to get the staysail untied and all that. The danger zone. Get into the danger zone. So just, like, let the boat go, man. This is the time yeah. to see how that happens. So I got up in the morning. I slept for, like, three or four hours. Got up with the dawn. Boats just sitting there, merrily, merrily, merrily. And actually, after I figured it out, I actually made like 20 miles because I was going in the right direction. Ah, oh, nice. There yeah. you go. Yeah, so it was bonus. a bonus. You know, I go, <laughs> yeah, hey, man, that's cool. I, I typically like to um, run. I run, run, run. Even even in the worst of the worst, I've always just peeled straight downwind. Not straight downwind, just a little bit off. Well, that's what Bernard says. He likes to run. He likes to run, yeah. I mean, I did, when I when I went through Tropical Storm Wanda, that one, because they were forecasting, like, I think 50 knots, and I knew I could not get away from it, 
uh, and first was being hit with Easterlies, I believe. Uh, Where was that at? This was halfway across, uh, almost halfway across between the U.S. and Africa. I was just about starting my turn south to uh, go to the equator. And essentially, yeah, it just it 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 meandered around, uh, and then just started coming right towards me. And I did was, you have some sort of weather source? Yeah, yeah. I at that point I was using a sat phone and downloading mm. the weather files onto my computer. Now I use sort of a different system with the Iridium Go and all that sort of How stuff. How does that work out for you? It works Iridium? really well. Yeah, yeah. And faster, cleaner, cheaper. And so, like, that is a subscription, is that right? Uh, you have to buy the minutes, but I don't use Predict Wind, so there's no subscription on that. I use another program, an app called Luck Grib, and you can buy that for like 50 bucks, and then it's yours. What about the uh, hardware? Uh, the machine. The, the machine, yeah. You have to buy the, the Iridium Go. I think you can rent them from sat phone companies, but I think. So you don't have to hook up with um predict wind pr predict wind because no, i not. i got into a pissing contest with them i yeah i i just didn't want to pay for another subscription <clears throat> that was my thing because i used the garmin inreach as well that's what i use to be able to text people back and forth yeah right and then the iridium is just for downloading weather right so i bought that with like a thousand minutes on it and then found i was going to do predict win but then it just became too far out of my reach okay so wise. i got started with predict wind and bought an iridium go and it never worked i never could get it to be right uh-huh and so i called them i texted them a million times and never responded to me yeah and then one time they responded to me and they gave me a um a tech assistance so i got to the tech assistance and he le he led me in the wrong he led me on a garden path that wasn't even close, and the <laughs> the thing just didn't work. Right. And so, I called them when I got ashore and I said, "This is not working. I want out." And they go, "Well, you can't get out. You got a contract." And I said, "Well, okay. So the only thing I've got going for me is I am one mouth in the world of sailing." And I'm going to badmouth you every single <laughs> chance I get, constantly, forever. <laughs> and I'm going to start cussing and calling you guys like the biggest ripoffs on the one star navigational. Rating. No, no stars. No zero stars. Oh, Phil just took the star. Well, let's, let's try and stay on yeah. a positive note, but I, I will. So, note all right, that. so they canceled me. Oh, they did. Okay. And that's all I wanted. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, like, right. I got out of it. You well, know? that's good. That's good. Yeah, because, you know, know, it's obviously we know that boating stuff and offshore stuff is always going to be expensive. But, yeah, when I, when you look at the numbers on that stuff, I'm just like, mm. it was like 135 bucks a month when I started with them. Yeah, yeah. For a subscription. And it was a thousand bucks for the gizmo. Right. I was lucky. Um, I was kind of, I was kind of like wrong, I guess. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, good. You could admit that, you know. A lot of it is. It's our I was own no, ignorance. I was wrong in that. I met somebody on the dock, and we were talking about all this stuff. And he said he wanted an, an iridium go, mm -hmm. and I said, "Well, listen, I've got one that I'm not using because I'm not going offshore." I kind of lied a little bit, and said, so "Well, I'm just not using it now." And I pay a thousand bucks for it, and I'll be glad to get eight hundred. He go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And get there this, you go. <laughs> get this damn thing off the boat, man. Uh, gee, so now you don't have one at all, right? No, I don't have any connection at all to weather. Wow. Which is what I've never Besides had. Besides the old barometer. Huh? Besides the old the barometer. The barometer, that's it, man. The barometer and, you know, I have a couple of books um, about, <clears throat> uh, you know. Clouds um, and yeah. all that well, stuff. Well, yeah. I have a lot of weather books, but I have one book in particular that was written by uh, an admiral in the American Navy during World War II. Oh, okay. That crunched all this stuff, the correlations between wind speed direction and barometer. Oh, interesting. So if the barometer is doing one thing, the wind's doing something else, you can tell what's going to happen next pretty much. Hmm, interesting. Well, and, and that's, that's our back on, on Bernard, but, you know, he always said the more he's learned about the weather, the less he knows. Well, true enough. <laughs> I mean, because, like, there's... <laughs> Smart man. Well, you Smart know, man. I mean, you can only learn, you can only learn so much about it because, like, there's it's, really nothing to learn. I mean, like, it's totally unpredictable. It has, chaos. there are patterns sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. There are, there are climates that, and climatical changes and seasons that do various things. But in the end, there are so, so, so many variables that can change the ball game in a half a second for a reason that you have no idea about. I mean, like you have the, as a weather person, you have the basics of temperature. Temperature, pressure. Temperature and pressure, water temperature, air pressure, um, highs and lows, spinning around different directions. You're in the northern hemisphere, so it's going <clears throat> counterclockwise and, you know, vice versa and all that. So, you know, you have an idea, but there ain't no guarantee. And it, things just happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. I, and even. That's one thing I did learn. So uh, before I had the Iridium Go, using a computer and this the sat phone, it was real tricky, and it took a long time to download the weather, and it was a pain in the butt. And, you know, if it was rough out, I would lose the signal, so I would only do it usually when it was nice, so maybe every, like, five days, right? So that left me a little bit in the dark. When I had the Iridium Go, I could download pretty much every day if I wanted to. And what they found was that that gave me a bit of overconfidence. I don't think I would have ever wandered anywhere near the Gulf Stream had I not been fed of this information, these up-to-date weather, up-to-date current. Thank you for that. You know? Because I've always thought that too much information, like this, this guy, what's his name, Scott, somebody who's the, the foremost... Um, Weather guy or Weather something? guy, the weather router. Hmm. I don't know him. I've never used one before. I've never used him either. Besides but, friends that you know follow Okay, the so trip. there's this one guy. His name is Scott something. I don't know. But my point about that is, is here's this guy who's in this really cool uh, farmhouse up in, New, up in Vermont somewhere. Yeah. With his dogs running around, chickens and beautiful hippie chick. And he found this way to like make a lot of money. By being a weather router, right, right. Well, I'm gonna put my life in his hands. Well, I, you know, he's just giving you information. He's just giving information it's that what he's crunching. You do with yeah, it. and he's crunching it his own way. Well, there are people who swear by him or swear by other weather sources. Yeah, and as far as I know, from my point of view, is I 
in my boat, sailing vessel Ness, I ain't out running nothing. Nothing. No, we get run over. I ain't out running a goddamn <laughs> thing. The best I could do maybe is duck. Right, right. But like outrun a storm, outrun a system, no. try to get it out of its way. No it's way in the world. It's nice to know mm. that it's coming, so you can get a little more prepared. Uh, I don't. Know, I would argue that because like in the time I know that it's coming, I would do nothing but worry. I just so okay, there it is, man. Hope to get the sails down tight. That is down, true. And there you go. There's been a lot mm. of times where the forecast mm. looks like it's dead on for like a, you know a two in the morning wind shift or a huge buildup or something and i will hours before that like put reefs in the main and this and that and then i'm wallowing for hours yeah waiting and for this worrying. thing it doesn't We're happen worrying yourself nuts see and that's where <laughs> i i think you know i will take as much information aboard as possible but I did learn. I learned a valuable lesson on this last trip is that you cannot get overconfident because what you're seeing on that screen, what that forecast is telling you, is not an absolute fact. And just because you have the most detailed, cool new app, it doesn't make for anything when it comes down to the fact that the ocean, the wind, the waves are unpredictable. Unpredictable. Absolutely. And they're going to do what they do. They change for, for reasons that you can't see. And on top of that, mix add to that right now is for whatever reason, you don't have to go there. But for whatever reason, there are changes happening in the climate. Yeah. Oh, things are changing. Whether yeah. it's like, you know, just natural um, evolution of the planet and all the uh, various ice and warming stages that we've gone through. Or, you know, it's man induced or some of the other some, you know bits and pieces whatever there are um things that are happening now weather-wise that are unprecedented well and i was just going to ask you so in in all the years that you've been going out to sea what, what do you think's changing the most what are you seeing with those eyes well i guess i'd have to say just basically the unpredictable unpredictability of it because before, I was a staunch user of the pilot charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I gave trust you them. information, percentages of, you know, you, you got 10%, 10% of the time, gales are going to be in this spot at this month of the year, right? Yes. Those old school ones. Yeah, old school. Nice. And so that's what I used. So I believe that. And I plan accordingly using, I plot across a, um, a pilot chart. Yeah. You know, if I was going across an ocean, I'd, I'd see, like, okay, in April, there's more gales here. There's less gales here, less gales here. Why go there when there's more gales? So I would do that, and that pretty much kept me out of trouble. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work anymore. doesn't work anymore, yeah. That's the thing. Okay, and, and I had one experience. I don't know if we talked about this. Um, I was heading to Europe, when, like, last year or the year before. I don't remember because time just, like, who knows anymore. Um, <laughs> and the older you get, that's the way it is. Heck I can't yeah. remember like th there's so many trips and so many crossings and so many I stuff. Know. I don't it, know. It bleeds all in but, together. Uh, yeah, it all just it is. It's all one. Um, so I was heading to Europe, and I was north east of Bermuda already. I bypassed Bermuda because the weather was good. I kept on going, mm -hmm. and I was northeast of Bermuda, and a system formed out there. Right, right. And, and I was in it, man. I was like right there where the system formed. 
And like it wasn't, I had, um, when I passed Bermuda, I was able to get, they, they put out a really strong VHF signal. Oh, um, to blast out Norris yeah. to Mariner. Yeah, yeah. Norris to Mariner. So I just caught the edge of that. And it all sounded good. There wasn't anything on the screen about nothing. Yeah. So I figured, okay, man, you're good to go. Just keep on going. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. And it was like a formidable system. The whole sky turned black. Jeez, <clears throat> yeah. And it was coming from the east. And I just figured, man. Coming from know. the east? Yeah, it was coming from the oh, east. Oh, the winds were coming from the yeah, east. Yeah, so you were on the southern edge of it. Yeah, it was like, it was, it was, um, you know, it was a cyclone. It was going counterclockwise. So I was on, uh, I was on the outside edge of it, wind coming from the east. And I figured I had no chance of, uh, even hoving to and holding into it because I didn't know how long it was going to last. I didn't know even what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except it was like ugly. And so I just turned around and came back to um, um, the continent and it all dissipated and everything well before I even got close. It was like it was gone in a couple of days, but I was already heading back to Carolina. <laughs> yeah, right. So I figured I'm not turning around and going back to <laughs> Europe and be stupid about this. And look what time it. of year was this? It was like in May. It May. Was like, yeah, it was like May. Early. Yeah. It was in May, and it was a total anomaly storm, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. A tropical storm forming that early in the season north of Bermuda. Mm. So I figured, okay. Yeah, the water's pretty. I don't know anything anymore. Right, right. Either right. it's all like what you just off. said a little bit ago. It's all a gamble. You either do it or you don't. Yeah, yeah. You know, you either take the risk or you don't. You risk it or you just shut your mouth, one or the other, you know? You ain't going to see much if you don't risk it. Well, you got you know, you, yeah, you got to play the game or <laughs> sit on the couch and read more of Bernard Medusier and... And live vicariously. Live through vicariously it. through Donald Crowhurst, you know. Oh, geez. Well, as as we're at uh, almost two hours now. Wow, two not, hours. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I, I feel like you and I could probably sit for six hours. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, we both got more stories. Uh, but we like, definitely do. All right, so this is your interview, of course, and I've been trying to, you know, pay attention to it. So, okay, so is there <laughs> is there any other one question? That you would have for me? Yes. Yeah. What's that? Okay. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's I guess not not so much just a poignant question, but it's more a, a subject that uh, I'd like your take on or your thoughts on. Now, when I head out to sea, as opposed to life on land, and I this could just be me. I don't really know, but when I'm out there, there is such a huge emphasis or realization or feeling that I have a lot of purpose in my time and my life when I'm at sea. So it's not only the purpose of I'm doing something that I enjoy, but it's also the purpose of I need to keep this boat sailing. So I have purpose there. And then I'm trying to go from said point A to destination. So there's a purpose that each day I'm making way to get closer and closer. And I found that when I'm living in those circumstances out at sea, it is, there's a sense of fulfillment and a reason why I'm doing everything and a sense, I guess, uh, 
to the world around me and why in the hell I'm even doing it. And it, it kind of sounds weird because it's not like I'm doing it for a job. It's not like I'm doing it for any said reason going out to sea. But for whatever reason, this frivolous occupation or frivolous uh, sort of life that I lead when I go out there fills me with this purpose. And it feels really good. And I'm wondering if you have any takes on what what it's like and if you if you feel a sense of purpose different from the rest of your life when you're out at sea i know it's a pretty thick question yeah it's a pretty thick question um but it's really not a hard question to answer um because i just feel like i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing that there's just no nothing else for me to do uh, that i'm doing i'm live my life is what I wanted it to be. I've manifested it, like everybody manifests everything in their life. You know, you your life is a reflection of what you make it. And so, okay, so I just, <clears throat> I'm just doing what I think I should be doing. And my whole purpose anyway is to be the best Philip that I can be, the realest Philip that I can be, doing the best I can do in the real world that I live in, being a part of the real world, not being connected to the computer or societies or uh, groups or anything else, just being Philip the best I can be and taking it to the very end. That's all I know. Nice. Well, I think that's going to be the best way that we can end this podcast. Um, I want to thank you for spending so much time. I know you're you're still planning on taking off tomorrow, right? I'm planning on taking off. Um, uh, it um, yeah, I want to take off. Uh, it looks like the weather's going to be good, but like I won't say that I am definitely taking off because there is no definitely anymore. And I've learned majorly a million times over that I can say to you, "This is my plan." And it ain't going to happen that yeah. way. You know, I never plan to do what I'm doing right now. Right, right, right. Being here in, in North or in South Carolina, when I left the boatyard in uh, early February in, in uh, St. Mary's, I was planning on going to the Caribbean or to uh, the Bahamas, spend the rest of the winter in the northern end of the Bahamas, maybe Eleuthera. And then in May, first weather opportunity sail to the south coast of Newfoundland, spend most of the summer there, and then go across the Atlantic to Scotland and then come back through the Canaries uh, next year. That was the plan. And then um, on one phone call, my niece and nephew made plans to come to Oriental. They have other friends in the area that, mm -hmm. and family that they want to visit, and they decided that they're coming to visit me. And... Uh, on a certain date, and I don't do dates. I don't do um, schedules, but I love them. Besides the tide. I love them. <laughs> besides the tide. I love them, and so I said, okay, I'll do the best I can. So, like, all of a sudden, I changed my whole plan to go back to Oriental when I wasn't really planning on it. The life of a sailor right mm -hmm. there, man. And so I'm going to Oriental right now. I have a month to get there as of right now, today, a month. And I still have 300-something miles to go. So I want to, like, kind of get there. But, um, if it, you know, if I woke up in the morning and it was rainy, windy, and horrible, 
and cold like it was this morning. Yeah, right. I just say, hey, whatever. I like it here, and like this is nice. The marina is great, and you know, talking to you and um. Oh, I, I as soon really, as soon as I knew that was you on the end of the dock, I, that made my day. It did, it really did. Because <laughs> it's very rare, you know. You meet like-minded uh, adventurers that actually. Well, you know, like we talked about early on in this conversation, that it is amazing and um, fairly common to run into people that you know. Yeah, I have uh, some friends I talked to yesterday um, that I had. They're from Oriental. I've met them um, five years ago now, four years ago. Anyway, we've become good friends, and I just—they were coming back from uh, um, the Bahamas just now. We hooked up for a couple nights in Georgia, and Kip, he said, "Well, you know, Philip, we met people that know you almost everywhere, and for <laughs> a person who claims to be a recluse <laughs> and claims to be." A self-sufficient by yourself person, you sure know a lot of people, you know. Got a reputation. <clears throat> Boat does. Boat does. Well, yeah, no, I, I, mm. and you know that's one of those things. I, I always try and remember to stay, uh, pretty humble. You know, when people come and want to see the boat and everything, the boat gets all the credit. Because yeah. the boat does the work. Yeah. I'm just kind of you're the weak link in the chain. Oh, always, totally. we Absolutely. know that. I know that. There is. I don't have any doubt about that. And the older that I get, the weaker I get. <laughs> I know that. That link. <laughs> the link is getting worn a little hey, more. A okay. Little so more. just a side note to that. <laughs> in St. Mary's, I just replaced 400 feet of chain. Oh, really? Yeah. 400 feet of chain is what you keep on that boat. Yeah. Holy I'm on my, on my main anchor. I've got 300 feet more in other places, but I've got 400 feet Why of chain. Why do you keep that much Because I believe in chain, man. Wow. Because I believe in chain. Because like you sell it on the side or what? Huh? That's a lot of chain. No. I, what, <laughs> if you get caught somewhere, like Ness doesn't like, oh, maybe right, ain't going right. to go to Windward off of Lee Shore, um, so Jack Flash fast, you know? And yeah, like, yeah, true, it comes true. up really quick, and I need to like, you know, hunker down because i don't have a choice so i'll put out three four hundred feet of chain whatever it takes and you know another anchor and i've got five anchors and you know i'm loaded that boat's loaded i yeah you are you are uh i would definitely call you a seasoned mariner and you know here a side note to all this a side note to the side note is the chain that i just replaced i replaced four years ago in grenada oh wow because that chain that I had originally started rusting. Yeah. So I was in Grenada. I figured, okay, man, like you're here, you can get the chain, just replace it. So I replaced it. It came from Trinidad. It was like the worst, worst shit chain in, in the world. In the world. It didn't last four years. It started rusting. Yeah. And it started. And when I got to St. Mary's, I wanted to clean my chain locker out because I was in this yard that I could do anything. So I pulled all the chain out. I'm going, whoa, man, this chain is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is dirtbag ugly. So in Grenada, the chain that I bought from Trinidad cost me $11 a foot. That was a really expensive chain. Yeah. 11 bucks a foot. What's it going and for now? I bought the chain that I have now made in America for $5. Dang, there you go. So when I when I checked it out and got the price, I said, "Yeah, this is no brainer, man." Wow, four hundred mm. feet of it though. Yeah, yeah, they sent me a whole barrel. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I have maybe 70 or 100 feet. Really? And you use road? Well, I I typically try to anchor in pretty shallow places, you know, 10 feet. Yeah, well, um, that's better. And I, I always I always have two anchors in a series. Um, okay, so tell me that again. How far behind your main anchor do you do oh, it? Oh, yeah, we talked about this before. So I, I started doing this because of this book here, and I'm... Is that Bernard? From, uh, yeah, it's Bernard Motissier's uh, A Sea Vagabond's World. It's basically all put together from his one of his wives. But uh, he gives a heck of a lot of really good info. And the anchoring part is, uh, where is it? Well, we'll look at it later. But essentially, I typically have a Danforth anchor that I drop in first. It has about 20 feet of spectra, and that gets connected to the back of a Bruce or a plow anchor, a heavy-duty one. And then I have chain coming up to the boat. And so it's in what I call a series because it's all in one line, and the Danforth helps the other one bite and bite and bite, and uh, it gives me that extra bit of security because Sparrow likes to yaw at anchor. She so, loves going back and forth. Yeah, so it's nice. So this was his... Uh, his first real boat, the um, Tayamata or something, or yeah. no, uh, um, Maria something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The name after girlfriend. It was like a Tahiti. Okay, so that looks a lot like my boat actually. The same sail rig. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, gaff rig main and um, Marconi mizzen, and it's a double ender. It's about the same size. Flush deck though. This is a lot of okay, really. Okay, so how about we trade? This for the um, biography. The biography. <clears throat> that's a toughie. Because, you know, I, that's been with me ever since the beginning. But uh, I think I think we can do that. I think we can well, do I don't want to twist your arm. And I oh, couldn't do well, that. No, of you course. know what? I'll tell you what. If you're here tomorrow, <clears throat> I have a shipment of my book coming in. I was going to give you one anyway. Yeah, what time? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. I mean, because like, that might be worth waiting for. Hey. You know? <laughs> I mean, hell, you know? well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll talk right, so, about that. All right, what about the trade? You want to do that? Uh, We'll talk about it. All right, off we'll, the, we'll sleep on it a little here. bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Phil. Because I never even heard of this one. And all the techie stuff yeah, that cool. he's got there, you know, his, his take. Especially the anchor business. It will probably come in handy on your boat because you have a little bit more technology made to that. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just really cool. I mean, there's a chapter about settling in a toll. Well, okay, so <laughs> that, that, the, the uh, biography. Yeah, when he's in the Carolines, right? Yeah, and he, I mean, there's a there major like part of years. his life was living in the atolls, and he was like... He was as much a farmer as he was a sailor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he knew how to do stuff. Growing melons and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, he knew. And um, the locals were like, what? This yeah, is awesome. and they weren't into like half the stuff that he was because like they were um, islanders that like to lay under the coconut tree and drink shit and smoke shit and <laughs> do nothing well because you if you already live in paradise what the hell are you gonna do anything yeah for? but they were like they were starving it, um in well that's true in yeah, various yeah. ways i didn't have a well-balanced diet 
and stuff, and they were like really haphazard. They didn't. What they didn't have was dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was a coral atoll. And he was all about compost. He was all yeah. about compost, and he learned how to do stuff. And he like he work 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 and work. And one of the things that was like the bane to his and their existence was rats. Yeah. And crabs too, right? Crabs. Uh, yeah, the um uh, the Coconut the land crabs. Crab. Yeah. Yeah. But it was rats. And so like he came up with this plan to um to, he sailed somewhere back to Tahiti or something, back to yeah, back to Papiete and collected a bunch of cats. Oh. And brought the cats out there and started to like acclimate them to eat rats yeah. and to be live on these little small islands where the rats were propagating and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the natives just like thought he was out of his freaking mind <laughs> and they wouldn't cooperate with him. Oh, really? Yeah, and they were detrimental to the project. The project actually started to work, but like they started feeding the cats oh, and being nice to the cats. Right. Well, he treated yeah. them, he'd kick them. Oh really? Just yeah. to, like mean them up. He mean them up, get them away from the um, garbage piles and stuff. Right, go right. Go out right. and eat rats. Interesting. I didn't know any of that stuff. I yeah. knew about the rats, but I because the rats are on all of them. Yeah, and he had, yeah, he was doing all kinds of stuff, and they were um, uh, making um, fish traps. Yeah, and yeah, whatnot, yeah. and well, because he was there for three years. Yeah, he right? was there for a few Something years like with his family. Yeah, with yeah. his wife. And their subsistence living, yeah. essentially, on their own little atoll. Boy, I tell you, he lived at the right time. That would have been so cool to be able to well, do Well, he got away with a lot of stuff that you can't get away with now. Exactly. Because of the, the crunch on your personal freedoms and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he went places, he sailed places with his boat, with Joshua, where he'd just show up. And that was that. And, you know, here I am. And... There were places, you know, like uptown places, like the French were pretty snotty about things, but he was French, so he'd get away with that. Oh, yeah. But he yeah. went other places where he'd just show up and, like, just, okay, I'm not checking in. Why should I? Yeah, I'm a citizen yeah, yeah. of the world. I, I, I've always toyed with that idea of uh, pulling up on one of the Pitcairn Islands, like Ducey Island or Henderson Island. Those. Uninhabited, you know, Ducey Islands and Atoll. You go in there and just, like, I don't know. If I, yeah, somehow get somehow get the boat inside the lagoon, camouflage it a little bit, and then. Yeah, I don't even know <laughs> if you have to camouflage it because both of those islands, Henderson and Ducey, they're like out there in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. But they do have. Did you ever stop at Pitcairn? No, no, I was way south of that. I was like, south. I had it on, I had it on my radar right, screen. Right, yeah. I had it on target for a while. Always, always liked uh, that one, Juan Fernandez Island, right off the coast. Yeah, wasn't that the one that Selkirk was on? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boy, oh boy, uh, we could just keep going and going. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so is this thing still working? Yeah, it is. Still we're going. at uh, we're at two hours and seven minutes. Damn, this is one of the longest podcasts I've uh, ever had the pleasure. Yeah, of well, doing. okay. So, but you're gonna edit that though, right? No, uh, uh-uh. I just put up. it right out. Yeah, yeah. I I listen to it, make sure all the you mic can levels edit are good. it to it, right? You I can. can yeah, yeah. It takes forever. I only have had to do that when people start. Uh, getting into like politics and stuff, and then I typically edit that out because I don't really. 
this is this is a break from pop culture politics stuff. Uh, so okay, and so having said that, not getting into politics, but having said pop culture politics, yeah, the politics today is just so freaking crazy. <laughs> no matter what side of the fence you're on, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just like it's just don't make absolute, me edit this out. It's just absolutely <laughs> crazy. Phil, but, it, is there? I am an American <laughs> to the bone, and. If the politicians want to screw up the country, that's their business. I'm still an American. I, I think you could very easily live by that quote uh, that you are a member of the most beautiful nation on the planet, the ocean. Yeah. An ocean that has no boundaries, right. that has no laws, or whatever it is. But yeah. I, I wish I knew that one by heart. But that Well, one you have definitely... it in the book, you know. Oh, yeah. No, 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 for sure. Well, is there? I know there was uh, an article written about you. If you did you see that? If you send that to me, you get it off of Facebook. You get I don't it, have Facebook. You don't? No. But I, I'm sure I, I can get it somehow, and I'll put the link in the description for this so people can at least okay, so, see your. All right. So another way to get it, maybe without going to Facebook, would just be um, going to um, uh, the local newspaper, I don't know what the name of it is, in Greenport, Long Island. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You let me worry about it. I'll make yeah, sure I don't know. I don't that know. there's the link so at least people can see it. But uh, So I let that article go. Um, I let it get published because when he contacted me in Greenport, and I was there waiting for the sale, and somehow or another the reporter heard something about me anyway. He came down and wanted to interview me, and I said, well, look, I'm not really into doing interviews, you know. He goes, well, how about this? How about I'll come down, we'll just sit and talk, and I'll write the article, and I'll give it to you. I promise oh, before that I'll give it to it? you before it's published. And if you say no, it's no. Right, right. And so he did it, and I looked at it, and I go, you know, there's no BS here. It, you know, he wrote it good. I liked it. I thought it was cool. And and so for all the people that know me but don't know me, that, okay, I'll let it fly. So yeah. okay. Nice. There you go. Well, hey, listen, I you got a wealth of knowledge, a lifetime of sailing, 10 lifetimes of sailing out there on these oceans. It's a wonderful thing to be able to share that with the world because there's, you know. Well, the one not- thing is, is right now I'm really happy to, like, be able to inspire Young, younger people or older people that think that if you're not a sailor, if you weren't born by the sea or you didn't spend half your life sailing, that you can't sail or you need all this stuff, all the electronics and everything, all the GPS and AIS yeah, you know, and on and on and on and on, on, on. And so, like, if you ask me, I just say, you know what? What you got to do is you got to do it. And you just got to go out and sail because that's how you learn to sail. You don't learn to sail any other way except going to sail. And the electronics and all the stuff, it all makes it easier. But in the end, you got to like have some sea sense. It comes down to that. And how do you get a sea sense? By sailing. That's the only thing I know. There you go. Wise words from a wise old sailor. Phil, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, Boy, I got to tell you, all right, looking at your hands, it's there. those are the rawest hands <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. And yeah, you, Can I ask you something? Because, you they're know, still, they're, 
75 years of like hands on, you know, I, they're well, still there. And do you have any like arthritis or anything like that? No, none at all. Because we're using our hands all the time. No, I don't have any arth- arthritis in my hands. The only thing I have is I have this goddamn thing going on with the hip. And I did come across, I did have um, some sciatica. Mm-hmm. I refused. I just plain bullheaded my way out of that one. <laughs> what, through like stretching and stuff? No, just said, you know what? I ain't paying attention to you. Go away. <laughs> you know, just I'm not having it because like it's slowing me down. It's a pain in the ass, literally. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's like got me whining and like just shut up and leave me alone. And I just keep on moving and it doesn't even exist anymore, really. You beat it. Good man. Yeah, I even went out at one <laughs> point. I got a cane because the sciatica hurt so bad. Oh, really? I was like walking around with a cane. And then one day I just I put the cane down in a store to pay the bill or something. I walked out without the cane and I walked a couple blocks and I go, damn, man, you left the cane there. And I go, well, shut up, Philip. You're walking. And like it's so good, so let them have the proofs in the pudding. Yeah, yeah, so forget it. Just go on, (laughs) go. Well, you're an inspiration and a heck of a guy, and I can't wait till the next time we run into each other and we get to do this all over again. Well, we probably will, um, um, somewhere because, like you know, it's inevitable, more or less. Well, if I end up hauling out anywhere up near Oriental, I'll let you know. Well, we'll so definitely... there's some good yards up there. I know. Well, I'm having trouble getting a hold of the one that I'm looking at right what now. It, what's so. that? Which one is that? Well, I don't want to mention it just because I'm griping about them already. All right. So this place that I mentioned to you mm-hmm. down in uh, uh, St. Mary's, mm-hmm. it's a really good yard. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good yard. They let you do anything, and it's okay being there. Yeah. The problem is... And I'll give you the key to it. It ain't even a problem if you know the key. It's owned and operated and run by one guy whose name is Rocky. Mm-hmm. Rocky does not like to talk. He is not a talker. He's a doer. Yeah. He's a hard worker. He's really smart. He's got one of the best boat placing systems that he invented and built himself going anywhere. Yeah. But he don't talk. He don't like to talk. So don't press it. Well, and you don't, you can't call him because he'll never call you back. The only way to get a hold of him is um, text. That is, that's how he communicates. Because oh. he doesn't have to look you in the face. <laughs> and he can do it at his own pace, on his own time. Yeah, yeah. Whenever, oh, okay. So you text him. And you make a plan, and then you just sit back and wait for the plan to happen. You got his number? I do. Okay. Well, we'll talk after this. Yeah. Uh, that would be very helpful. So that's a good yard. And yards. In um, uh, Oriental, there's two uptown yards right in Oriental. Um, Seacraft and what used to be known as Deaton's, which is now a Zimmerman's. Zimmerman's, yeah. They are, they're okay, but they don't allow you to do everything, and they are spendy. That's what I've heard. They're a little bit pricey. Both of them are pricey. Yeah. They're right next to each other. They're across a very narrow creek from each other. They're right there. Well, my trouble, I, I need to be able to stay on the boat to do these projects for like a month, and then I'd be gone after that. Okay, so, so. in... Outside of Oriental, you look it up, mm-hmm. whatever your source is, 
is Hurricane Boatyard in Bayboro, North Carolina. I've heard of that one too, yeah. Funky. Seriously <laughs> funky. Really funky, but you can live aboard. And I uh, sandblasted my bottom there. It was the only yard on the East Coast that you that, could do uh, that. Allow me to sandblast. Why? What do you say funky for? Because it is um, like funkier, as in like Night Marine. I don't think of Night Marine as funky. I think of it as uh, family owned and operated. And well, this is family owned and operated, and it is um, a lot of character. It's got a lot of character. Um, It's not exactly what you call an uptown boatyard. Well, I don't want no uptown boatyard. No, it's not an uptown boatyard. It's, it's is it gravel the, or is it paved? No, it's gravel. That's the only disadvantage. But you know what? Um, I oh don't. I have never been in a yard that's paved. Neither have I. I mean, it's always been. A, I, when I got back in the water this time from St. Mary's, you can anchor in the river out there. Really cool place to anchor. Great place to anchor. Yeah. So I went out in the river for a week. And painted my decks out there because oh, okay. I couldn't do it in the yard because it was just too dirty. Because right, I'm tracking right, sand right. on and off the boat constantly. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing with um, uh, Hurricane. The only disadvantage to Hurricane is like it's six or seven miles from anything, any stores. Right, right. But right. you can get rides, <clears> so it's like no big deal. But it's a good yard, though. You can get things done there. Okay. Well, I'll I'll take a look. I I have a it little was bit of time. Cheap. That's that's probably the most important thing for me. Okay, so like, all right, <laughs> so this yard here in St. Mary's cost me seventeen hundred dollars for two months on the hard, in out pressure washer, two months on the hard. Seventeen hundred dollars for two months on the hard. Yeah. What? That's expensive. Okay, and in Hurricane it was four hundred and eighty for a month. Yeah. Okay. I see. There's four hundred and eighty in out pressure wash. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, up it up in Maine, you know, you do like summer storage or winter storage. It's not going to be that much. And in Hurricane, you can store it there. That's the and thing. the good news is the guy who like... owns the yard, <clears throat> John Buck. Mm. He's a bulldog. Yeah. He don't allow nobody steps into that yard that he doesn't know that he don't know and if he he don't know you he roars up in his f-250 yeah pumped yeah. up pickup he goes well who the fuck are you <laughs> did you get along with him i got along with him fine yeah he was great so you could be my reference oh yeah yeah oh yeah they know me real well i've been there three times okay awesome. yeah philip sailing vessel nest connections thank you phil yeah. till next time yeah man <laughs>